this could be a blood-soaked episode. Like some sadistic Dr. Seuss book. That might violate our lease. Uh, and then the Benny Hill music starts playing. Welcome to Up Yours Downstairs, the podcast that's been reading those socialist newspapers again. I'm Kelly Anakin. And I'm Tom Schneider. We are properly married. I hope we're brave enough for this. Uh, I hope we're drunk enough for this. Well, I wish. Yeah, we're not drunk. We're not at all. We were, but now we're not. <laughs> right. It's been, uh, it's been a roller coaster ride, cousins. <laughs> Welcome back. We are here at the penultimate episode. That's right. In Downton Abbey, series four. And uh, we're very excited. We very much are, We're yes. very excited, everyone. Yeah. We, we really think this show's turned it around. Yeah. Uh, despite the best efforts of Baron Julian Fellows. Right. So well, yeah. there's that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not like it hasn't like gotten back on the road yet, but it's heading towards it. You know? Yeah, like, like they've identified where the road might be. <laughs> right. And which characters <laughs> might be interesting. <laughs> yeah. Whether they will actually find the road and remain on the road is, uh, as always, yeah, an open question. We aren't, uh, we're not hopeful. <laughs> we've, if we've learned anything from this experience in this <laughs> podcast, it's never to hope. Right. There's always just a Lavinia Swire waiting in the wings <laughs> to just ruin everything. So, at any rate, yes. uh, we have no new countries this week. Correct. So we will dive right in to Cousin of the Week. <laughs> okay. We have a telegram from Cousin Leonard. Dearest cousins, Kelly and Tom, I am an adjunct college teacher with a longtime affection for Edwardian England and English country house literature and films. I recently came across your most humorous and perceptive Up Yours Downstairs podcasts online. I first listened to the podcasts of episodes of the current series thus far, which I have watched on DVD, and I am now working my way through all the rest in order. Poor Miss Swire is about to expire. <laughs> I also listened to your Manor House and Gosford Park commentaries, since those are two of my all-time favorites. Thank you for the excellent and vital work you are doing. Not sure this is vital. <laughs> Just putting that out there. If you think it is, cousins, that's great. Yeah. This being a dark and dreary day here in northern Vermont, and having little more to do than a typical member of the landed gentry, I began thinking about what Downton Abbey might have been if Baron Fellows had foregone some of his more extravagant flights of fancy and had created somewhat more realistic storylines. I've written a treatment of what that might have been like and have also taken the surviving characters into the decades beyond those already covered. So here, then, is my version, a more realistic Downton Abbey. I hope you enjoy it. Yours most sincerely, Cousin Leonard. Uh, and then he does indeed have the treatment, which I will read through. Okay. Uh, which is uh, really good. So strap in, cousins. <laughs> Lady Sybil did elope with Branson, and they moved to Ireland, where his plans to be a revolutionary never came to fruition. He remained a newspaper writer, and Sybil pursued nursing prior to giving birth to twin girls. The lower middle-class Bransons lived contentedly, and later in life were reconciled with the remaining members of the Crawley family, especially Cora, who loved her grandchildren dearly. Lady Edith did marry Sir Anthony Strallen. As predicted by Violet, Edith became an old man's drudge, though a happy one. She and Sir Anthony loved each other deeply and were fixtures in the county set, boring for Britain until the end of their days. <laughs> Lady Mary broke off her engagement to Sir Richard Carlyle, and he published every word of her scandalous story. <laughs> she was forced to move to the U.S. to live with her grandmother, Martha Levinson. Mary became the darling of sophisticated New York society and eventually married a United States senator, over whom, it was said, she exerted considerable influence. <laughs> After the Great War, Lord Grantham lost the family fortune due to a bad investment. Soon thereafter, as would any honorable gentleman, he closed the library door one day and shot himself in the head. <laughs> 
take a moment for all of us to <laughs> chuckle. Matthew never regained the use of his legs. He married the faithful Lavinia Swire, and upon the death of Robert, became the Earl of Grantham in his own right. Fortunately, a wealthy uncle died soon thereafter in India, leaving his massive fortune to Lavinia, who saved Downton Abbey, much as Cora had done decades before. Lady Cora, after a period of deep mourning, gained a new self-assurance. She lived on at Downton, but traveled often, spending time with all her daughters and especially enjoying her sojourns in New York. After Violet's death, she assumed the title of Dowager Countess in her own right and moved into the Dower House, a beloved figure on the estate and in the village. Isabel did marry Dr. Clarkson, and they lived the rest of their days in Crawley House in the village, where he continued doctoring and she continued meddling to a ripe old age. Her fiery friendship with Violet lasted as long as Violet did. Violet lived until the eve of the Second World War and died just a few years shy of her hundredth birthday. Though never speaking of Robert again, she retained her wits and her sharp tongue until the end when was a much respected and much feared figure on the estate. The staff at Downton Abbey dwindled through the years, with most of the lower servants gradually replaced by day workers from the village. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Patmore, after cooking for Matthew and Lavinia for many years, retired to a seaside boarding house, where the food was not up to her standards, but the rest was most welcome. After Mr. Mason's death, Daisy moved to the farm, where she eventually married a local farmer, had seven children, and worked unceasingly until the end of her days. Thomas took a job as valet to a handsome Italian nobleman, and they lived secretly as a couple in Tuscany, where they supported the fascists and basked in the sunshine. Miss O'Brien, having betrayed Cora, moved with Lady Flintshire to India, where they both died of cholera. Anna never remarried after her husband, Mr. Bates, was hanged for murder in the early 1920s. She became Lavinia's lady's maid and would eventually be the last remaining servant at Downton Abbey. During the Second World War, Lavinia and Matthew relocated to the Dower House. Downton Abbey, being situated far to the north of the worst bombing, was used as a repository for the most important of London's art treasures, which were secretly stored for safekeeping throughout the house. An elderly Mr. Carson watched over them as lovingly as if they were titled nobility. (laughs) Mr. Carson and Mrs. Hughes eventually retired to neighboring cottages on the estate, where they drank tea and reminisced over old times in Mrs. Hughes' parlor, he talking about how much better the old days had been and she rolling her eyes. The remaining members of the family who lived nearby visited them often. In the years after the war, with no reasonable way to make the estate profitable and no direct heir to the title, Matthew and Lavinia deeded the estate to the National Trust and moved permanently into the Dower House. A half century later, a screenwriter named Julian Fellows, who had achieved some notoriety as the writer of the award-winning Gosford Park, decided to create a fictional version of the Downton Abbey story, which is filmed in the original house. (laughs) Uh, So that's a more realistic Downton Abbey uh, we hope you enjoyed it as much as we do. We, I yeah. wish you could see Tom's face right now, cousins, because he's grinning like a character from Wallace and Gromit. Uh, very adorable. Yeah. At any rate, I read that at work and got a little choked up. I yeah, mean, it's just, it's, it's really beautiful. Yeah. And thank yeah. you so much for sharing it, cousin Leonard. Absolutely. And I, I think it speaks so much to sort of why we do this podcast and, yeah. and what people get out of Downton Abbey. Mm-hmm. Um, that we do love these characters and right. and we like seeing them made happy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Again, despite Baron Fellows <laughs> constant sadistic efforts to make sure that doesn't happen. Oh, right. Um, no, but it's just great to see that we're not the only people who, who want interesting things to happen to these folks. Mm-hmm. So thank you again, cousin Leonard. Congratulations on being cousin of the week. Yes. Uh, if you would like to throw your hat in the ring for cousin of the week, you can write us a telegram. We are up yours downstairs at gmail.com. You can tweet or send a carrier pigeon to us at five, the number five Maggie Smiths. Uh, or you can just find us on Facebook. Just search up yours downstairs. That's right. 
All right. And uh, I think now it's time to get right into this recap. Okay. Well, of course, we start with Ralph Lauren, as usual. Uh, this week, he's in t- telling us that there's just something something special about working with an artist, working with them and then stealing all their profits. I pay the artists very little, mm-hmm. Ralph Lauren says. And he laughs all the way to the bank. <laughs> right. I hate him. <laughs> yes. As do all right-thinking people. And I have, I really have to say... Viking River Cruises. I've seen <laughs> the commercials so often now that I really want to go I, and like, you know, do a whole supposedly fun thing I'll never do again on it. You know? <laughs> right. At least that's what I'm telling myself. <laughs> I told you, Stockholm Syndrome. Oh my God. Do they have them in Stockholm? <laughs> that is an excellent question. I would think so. Yeah. Do they? Come on. Stockholm Do they have nice. rivers in Sweden? <laughs> yeah. They Cousins. Have-, <laughs> have you ever been to Sweden? Do they have rivers? <laughs> if you know... We want to hear your story. <laughs> oh, man. In any case, the actual show. Uh, we start off seeing Mary, Edith, and Branson walking down to the pig barn. Edith looks dope for a pregnant lady. Yeah. She looks really great. She looks really good. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, still early, presumably. That's true. Um, you know, so early that her doctor really has no idea whether she's pregnant or not. <laughs> I, uh, I like to call the pig barn Tamworth House. <laughs> <laughs> In any case, uh, Mary says that the pigs are looking good after their disaster. Uh, Branson doesn't understand why he, who I suppose is the old pig man, yeah. that had been so highly recommended. He did come highly recommended. Right. Uh, but he did not make sure that the pigs had water before leaving. Which so seems like a pretty basic pig man function. I can only assume that he's not going to be highly recommended at his next post. Oh. <sighs> Yeah, he'll never work with pigs in this town again. <laughs> That's right. So we and we see the new pig man. Hey, it's Drew, that guy we'd all already forgotten about. Who? Yeah, right. Drew, U Tree Farm. Uh, doesn't ring a bell. Uh, his father died. Hmm. Yeah, anyway. that doesn't really narrow it down on this show. <laughs> right. Sure whenever he, whenever Baron Fellows needs something to happen, he's like, "Oh, could his father die? Let's go with that." That's, That's worked well for us in the past. <laughs> it happens in this episode. Uh, Edith asks Drew where he learned about pigs, and <laughs> Drew says that they've always had pigs at U-Tree. Not many, but enough to learn their ways, <laughs> which just gave me this great image of generations of Drews just sitting and staring at pigs. Yeah, Drews under the U. <laughs> right. <laughs> like some sadistic Dr. Seuss book. <laughs> I also have to say, I like the idea that at the Drew house there's a painting that's like that dog's playing poker. <laughs> Painting, but it's all pigs. <laughs> uh, so Drew asks if they've found a new pig man. Pig he's, man! <laughs> he's apparently just a temp. Uh, <laughs> but Branson has apparently discussed this with Mary and is offering the job to Drew, who says yes if they want him to do that as well as running his own farm. But apparently that's he's fine with that. Apparently, Are they paying him? Well, I, I have to assume, A, they're paying him, but also, maybe this is why U-Tree Farm has gone under, because you're just sitting around all day with plenty of spare time to go take care of other people's pigs. <laughs> maybe he's going to use the money from being pig man to hire people to work on his farm? Well, I suppose that could make he's sense. He's a job creator. <laughs> Drew is. That's a good point. He's the real hero. <laughs> he's not. Yeah. Um... So yeah, they're they're gonna give Drew a try. Edith is strangely interested in yeah, this whole she's, thing. Yeah, she's she's got her dumb brain a cooking us something up. Well, you know, farmers make her shiver all over. That's true. <laughs> she is she's really got a farmer fetish. Right, farmer fever. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, she wants to plow on a plow. <laughs> oh, yeah. Plow fever. I like that one. <laughs> anyway, yes, he says that work is like old age, the best thing except the alternative, which is... I'm sorry. I'm still laughing about plow fever. <laughs> it's not right. <laughs> Ah, please continue with with Drew's homespun wisdom. <laughs> right. Well, it's it's the you know it's the U tree family joke. Anyway, I don't. Never mind. What is plow fever or his <laughs> no. adage that he's about to lay on us? <laughs> oh, I had just said it while you were laughing. Oh. Anyway. This, oh well, then probably somebody else heard it. Brave. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I I like that Mary's like, oh, you know, it's a lot of work. And I'm like, how would you know? You've never (laughs) done any work in your whole life. She did just the other day. She carries some buckets. That's not the same. (laughs) Uh, No, he hopes he can pay them back. Like, I hope they're paying you now. Like, (laughs) they should be paying you now. (laughs) Yeah, This This may be why you were in arrears for so long. (laughs) Right. This is maybe not so much a favor. Yeah, this is them hiring you. Right. God. In the Dowager Countess's sitting room, that bastion of common sense, uh, the Dowager Countess is dozing when she hears the door open and hastily opens her book, which is great. Yeah. She's like, no one must know that I'm really old and sometimes I drop off. <laughs> Isabel comes in and says, it's only me. And the Dowager says that she feels that that greeting betrays a lack of self-worth. <laughs> Isabel uh, is like, okay, great. Right. So it's going to be like that today. <laughs> You never know which dowager you're going to encounter when you come to the dower house. Uh, Isabel asks, how are we today? And the dowager countess resents being patronized like a small child who's passed hope. Right. And uh, she says she feels like Dr. Manette from A Tale of Two Cities, which right. I never read that. I read it a long time ago, but from what I read, refreshing my memory, he was like locked up in the Bastille for like 20 years and oh, went good for crazy. Him. Yeah. Uh, well, then I think the Dowager Countess is perhaps exaggerating for effect. <laughs> Impossible. Anyway, she says she's got to get out of the house. So Isabel suggests that they walk over to the Abbey and uh, ask about Robert and his adventures in America. And she wants to know, is it really called the Teapot Dome Scandal? Which, like, shut up. Yes. Right. People name scandals dumb things. That's right. That's the point of scandals. <laughs> uh, the Dowager Countess says, as always, it's about bribery and corruption. Private companies bribing officials to drill on public land again this is the show that needed laura linney to explain an entail right and i don't know why because that (laughs) seems like a very concise yeah uh you know integrated way well really i feel like the show would be better off if they could take some of these awkward expositions out of the actual show and dump them onto laura linney at the Mm -hmm. beginning and end yeah and then we wouldn't have to have this well look insipidness clearly no one's interested in what we have to say (laughs) the fact that we have not yet been hired as creative consultants (laughs) on this show is an affront of the highest degree anyway uh Presumably, Mr. Levinson owns one of these private oil drilling companies, right. and uh, Isabel asks if the Dowager Countess has ever met him, and she says once at the wedding, and it was quite enough. Right. So, so uh, not a fan, the Dowager yeah. Countess. Look out for this crazy Yankee. Yeah, Uncle Harold. Boom. Yep. Mac H. Drilling for oil. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Mac H. Yes. Rose is on the phone with somebody, and she says that, the, that she is thrilled and says they will have such a lovely day. McGee wanders by and asks who it was, and asks who it was, and Rose says, "No one, just a friend." Like that is, 
that is that is an extremely close friend based uh-huh. on the tone of her voice. Uh, yeah, a lot of people at Downton talk on the phone to no one. Like, do they not know what the phone is for? <laughs> like, is it just to cover up their their you know? incesty <laughs> mental illnesses. Maybe that's just what McGee thinks, though. She's like, everyone else enjoys talking to no one, but I just don't see the fun in it. <laughs> I've got too much to do to talk to no one on the telephone. Well, she sure does. Oh, in this episode. Because the bazaar has crept up on her, mm-hmm. and she says that Rose is going to have to pull her weight. Now, she's she's pretty slight. Yeah. No, that's not too she's much She's not going to be able to pull much weight. <laughs> no. Uh, also, terribly irresponsible. <laughs> right. She is not good at this kind of thing. Yeah. Don't, yeah. She was left in charge of fun, <laughs> not bizarring. <laughs> right. Bazaars aren't fun. No, they're not. <laughs> uh, yeah. Apparently, Cousin Robert usually helps out. Uh, apparently, half the villagers hate the other half, and he's the only one that can keep them from tearing each other's throats out. I am highly skeptical of this. Right. I think it's just like... He's the only person that they're afraid of somehow, even though he's very ineffectual. Right. I think they're just uh, all actual adult human beings that can dislike each other without resorting to physical violence. Mm. But we'll see. I mean, there could this could be a blood-soaked episode. That would be really fun. <laughs> it would be. Spoiler alert, it's not. <laughs> right. Uh, anyway, McGee wanders off and Rose grabs the phone again. Baxter is sewing like she always is, and Mosley wanders in and admires her skill. Baxter asks if Mosley was a valet, and he says yes, he's come down in the world. Baxter says he can climb up again. Spoiler alert, Mosley cannot. Uh, and Baxter says she's had her stuffing knocked out more than once, and here she is, lady's maid to a countess, yeah. which is a good point. That's, That's a pretty sweet job. Agreed. Mosley is curious. Uh, as, as are we all. Yeah, we would really like to know in what ways she's had the stuffing knocked out of her. Right. But she changes the subject and asks if Mr. and Mrs. Bates have had a falling out, since we all care so much about that. <laughs> right. Including Thomas, apparently. Mosley thinks that it's unlikely, and then Mrs. Patmore asks uh, Baxter to put the sewing machine away so they can lay for tea. And that brings us to our recurring segment. Uh, in which our very own sewing slag, Kelly, is going to give us a little bit of fashion in Fashion Backwards. Uh, full disclosure, I don't know how to sew and I have no interest in learning. <laughs> so take that, everyone. <laughs> All right. Well, we're uh, pretty straight up wiki plagiarizing it today. Okay. Uh, discussing the s- history of the sewing machine. All right. So uh, it's generally agreed, uh, well... It's a little weird. The The invention of the sewing machine is bizarrely contentious. Hmm. Sort of who is responsible really for it. Because uh-huh. there were several early inventors uh, who invented a sewing machine. But like a lot of them like really didn't have their shit together. <laughs> yeah. um, so the first one listed here on Wikipedia is Charles Frederick Wiesenthal. And he was a German-born engineer working in England. And he was awarded the first British patent for a mechanical device to aid in the art of sewing. Uh, this was in 1755. And it was just a double-pointed needle with an eye at one end, which is basically the same needle that's still in use today. Okay. Uh, and then in 1790, English inventor Thomas Saint invented the first sewing machine design, but he did not advertise or market this invention. Like. <laughs> I don't know why you would invent something and then be like, you know what? 
never mind. <laughs> right. I'm I'm through. <laughs> but his machine was for leather and canvas specifically. Mm. So he was for more heavy duty materials. Uh, and he probably had a working model, but there is no evidence of one. He was uh, primarily a cabinet maker. And so uh, he had with this thing, like an overhanging arm and a feed mechanism and a vertical needle, needle bar and also a looper. Uh, but there is no... Nothing but his fever dreams, I guess, have survived. So this was in the 1790s, and Mm -hmm. basically nothing was done with uh, Saint's design until uh, 1894. Oh, wow. Which I don't really understand why anybody would bother at that point, because (laughs) they had already, like, been making other sewing machines. Anyway, in 1804, Englishmen Thomas Stone and James Henderson uh, built a sewing machine. And then a guy named John Duncan created a machine for embroidering in Scotland. And then uh, there was an Austrian tailor named Joseph Mattersperger. Uh, so he developed his sewing machine in 1807. But he didn't actually like present it until 1814. So this was a very long process right. to invent the sewing machine. Clearly, yeah. The first widely used sewing machine was invented by Barthélemy Timonier. Timonier? I don't know. He was French. Yeah. A French tailor, 1829, and uh, his machine sewed straight seams using a chain stitch. There's a whole thing about different stitches. Right. Which means nothing to me. Uh, Nor me. Yeah. So we're not going to talk about it. Right. If you care, uh, figure it out yourself. (laughs) It's on Wikipedia. So he signed a uh, contract with Auguste Ferrand, a mining engineer. Uh, so he, you know, made all the drawings and he submitted the patent application because he was an engineer versus a tailor. I imagine tailors know next to nothing about patent <laughs> applications. So the first uh, machine-based clothing manufacturing company in the world was then started by these folks to create mm. army uniforms for the French army. Uh, however, the factory was burned down. Oh. Uh, reportedly by workers who were worried about losing their livelihood uh, in the wake of this patent. Yikes. And the first American lock stitch sewing machine, again, no idea what a lock stitch is, <laughs> uh, was invented by a man named Walter Hunt in 1832. And uh, this also was sort of a, a shuttle loop overhanging arm design okay and then uh the british partners newton and archibald archibald yes not archibald archibald no uh, yeah they introduced the eye-pointed needle and uh the use of two pressing services to keep the fabric in position in 1841 so basically you've got sort of all of the elements of the sewing machine slowly coming together right right but it's not until 1844 that uh John Fisher, another English inventor. So most of the mm-hmm. inventing was actually done in England, which mm. is interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh but that also explains a lot about the, you know, industrial revolution and sure, that kind of thing. Right. Anyway, so he created a machine that brought all these elements together to process lace materials. And it was very similar to the devices built by Isaac Merritt Singer, who, spoiler alert, wound up winning. Right. Uh, and Elias Howe also had a device like that. But uh, there was a botched filing of Fisher's patent. So he did not receive recognition for inventing the modern sewing machine in uh, the legal dispute. Mm-hmm. Uh, and basically, it was mainly Howe and Singer who were fighting each other, but because he had not 
filed correctly. Right. Uh, he was left out of this tooth and nail argument. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, let that be a lesson to you, cousins. If you're going to invent something, you damn well better not screw up the patent filing. Indeed. I'm not really going to get into all of this arguing. Right. Because mainly it was, you know, people were deciding what the best way to power uh-huh, a sewing uh-huh. machine. This is sort of before the widespread use of electricity. So there was a treadle or foot pedal operated machine. Uh, there's also uh, the rotary machine, which is like hand cranked. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they were trying to find the most ergonomically right. convenient way to do this. There's also uh, a shuttle that could be used. But so, you know, there's a lot of different things going on. But then uh, in 1856, the sewing machine combination was formed. And that consisted of uh, Singer and Howe, as well as other inventors, uh, Wheeler, Wilson, Grover, and Baker. So they just pooled all their patents um, so that any other manufacturers had to obtain a license and pay $15 per machine. And I'm not clear if that's per machine that they manufactured or per machine that they, like, designed. Right. But – um. The last patent expired in 1877, and so then, you know, the lid really blew off <laughs> the sewing machine industry. That's right. The famous sewing revolution we've all heard so yes. much about. Uh, so a man named William Jones started making machines in 1859 and 1860 in partnership with a man named Thomas Chadwick. And so it's Chadwick and Jones, very uh, inventive. <laughs> they manufactured uh, sewing machines at Ashton Underline, England until about 1863. And so they were producing sewing machines under license from Howe and Wilson. Okay. Then uh, clothing manufacturers were the first people to really adopt the sewing machines, which right. makes sense. Uh, and they then invented the first ready-to-wear clothing and shoes. And then uh, in the 1860s is when consumers began purchasing them. Uh, at this time, they cost uh, between 6 and 15 pounds in Britain. Okay. Uh, so they started becoming a lot more common in middle-class homes. And so the owners were much more likely to spend free time with their machines to make and mend clothing for their families and to visit friends. And women's magazines and household guides, such as Mrs. Beaton's, offered dress patterns and instructions. Mm. Uh, a sewing machine could produce a man's shirt in about an hour, compared to 14 and a half hours by hand. And uh, so, but I mean, it's interesting that it took this long Mm -hmm. for a sewing machine to be introduced into Downton Abbey. But I mean, it makes a certain amount of sense because there's a lot less impetus for the upper class to want to cut down on that kind of work. Well, and it's also... Because they're not the ones doing it. uh, Yeah, I mean, A, there's that. And B, there was a definite reluctance all through the upper class. They felt anything machine made was tacky. Exactly. And even if it was, you know, you know, a a sewing machine is, is almost not... You know, I mean, it's still being made individually mm-hmm. for a single person, but still, it's right. a machine. Like, uh, so the first electric machines were developed by Singer, which is probably why they're the one that you still know about, right? Right. Um, but in 1889 is when the first ones were introduced, and then by the end of the First World War, they had hand cranked treadle and electric machines for sale. Uh, and at first, the electric machines were just a treadle or a hand-operated sewing machine with a motor strapped to the side. But as electricity became more common, they uh, gradually just included the motor in the casing. It wasn't sort of, you Mm. know, this extra thing that we're putting on the outside. Right. So a dress would have taken 10 hours by hand and a pair of summer pants would have taken three hours. And uh, most people only had two sets of clothing because it Mm -hmm. took so long. Right. Well, you know, and I'm sure, you know, it was expensive to buy the material, but 
you don't have that kind of time to be making too many clothes. Mm -hmm. And so sewing machines reduced the time for a dress to an hour and for a pair of summer pants to 38 minutes. So that's quite a lot of time. Yeah. Um, It's interesting. The way they phrase it here is that the reduced labor resulted in women having a diminished role in household management, but it doesn't go into that. And I don't know if that's what that means exactly because, I mean, a lot of times women would be kind of doing the accounts for their family and the shopping and all of these things. Right. But it then goes on to say they had more hours for their own leisure and to seek other employment, which right. is true. But it's like, I mean, it would it cuts down not on their role, but just in how much labor is involved in household management. Yeah, I that think. does seem odd. So, you know, get it together, Wikipedia. Yeah. And I was going to say they wouldn't have started having too many more clothes, even with reduced time, just because I know that um, laundry was one of the biggest household mm-hmm. expenses. And yeah. Time sucks. You know, that you didn't, you, you know. It wouldn't be worth it to have more clothes, even yeah. if it was cheaper to make them. Clothing production then, you know, began to move from housewives and seamstresses to factories. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was also just a decrease uh, in the time that it took to produce clothes. So uh, once sewing machines were introduced, clothing prices dropped significantly. Right. And that was because they didn't need as many workers to produce the same amount of clothing. So the only sort of drawback here is that it did result in fewer employment opportunities for garment workers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then sort of, you know, things recalibrated themselves and, you know, more opportunities to get your lungs coated in lint opened up for people. Right. Uh, and die in a fire. And die in a fire. That's right. And uh, not be respected by your employer. Fair enough. The uh, sewing machine had a lot of effects on other industries. Cotton production actually had to increase uh, in order to match the demand for new clothing. Right. And then uh, cotton kind of started being planted in areas where it had never been farmed before. And uh, metal companies were kind of experiencing a boom time because they were producing all of the parts for Hmm. the machines. And then shipping also increased. Uh, Gun makers actually would visit clothing factories to find out, you know, how they could better mass produce weapons. Hmm. And, you know, and and not just clothing, then, you know, people started mass producing upholstery and curtains, towels, toys, books, and other products that were made of cloth. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so that's pretty much uh, the sewing machine. Okay. Yeah, I was no, I was waiting for Elias Howe just because he gets a humorous dedication at the end of the Beatles movie Help uh-huh. for having invented the sewing machine. Well, so well, that's... well done, <laughs> Elias Howe. You did indeed give us all quite a bit of help, <laughs> as it turned out. Yes. Well, as did you, Kelly. Oh well, thank you very much. <laughs> Okay, so back at Downton, in the kitchen, Patmore asks if everything's ready for the servant's tea, and uh, she's sorting through the mail, says there's twice as many bills as there used to be. Uh, there's also a letter for Ivy. Uh, she hands it to her and then asks Daisy if she found oyster shells for the kettle. She says she's put them in, and it's a good thing, as the kettle were full of scale. Gross. Yeah. I've uh, experienced this, in fact. Yeah. So yeah, this is a tip I did not know. If you put an oyster shell in a kettle that's, if you have hard water with uh-huh. a lot of lime in it, that it will stick to the oyster shell and not to the uh, to the pot. Mm-hmm. So, so if you need to clean out a uh, a kettle and you've got an oyster shell lying around, <laughs> which, put that shit in there. Yeah, which who doesn't? Really? Yeah, we've got scads of oil, <laughs> oyster shells just lying around. I know, trip over them. I know. Uh, Ivy gasps at her letter and runs out of the kitchen. 
Patmore wonders what that was about. She found out Edith's pregnant. <laughs> and Daisy says, oh, just ignore her. She just wants us to think her life's interesting. Daisy is such a bitch. Yeah. Like, she's really giving Lady Mary a run for her money in this episode. She, she is. No, I'm, I'm such a fan of bitchy Daisy. <laughs> Uh, the family is having their tea in the library and Branson asks Isabel if there's anything interesting in the paper. She's reading the Meddler's Wanted section, actually. <laughs> <laughs> she says, actually, they're uh, looking for candidates for the local council and suggests that Tom run. He says that he doesn't know what his politics are and Isabel says that he should read the newspaper and decide. Uh, I would also suggest that the local council might not look favorably upon his past <laughs> as an estate ruiner. Right. And Irish revolutionary. Yeah. Like, I don't care how much eclampsy your wife had. They're, uh, they're gonna look long and hard at your past, you know, trying to take down the British government. Yeah, not to mention all the bananas his nephew was stolen. Oh god, let's not even get into that. <laughs> he says, uh, that there won't be many books about liberal ideals in the library, and none of them are about socialism. Right. Which I was like, I don't, you know, there's a Gutenberg Bible in there somewhere that's pretty socialist. It's one of the most socialist things that ever happened, even though it doesn't really get, you know, counted as such. Right. But like, they, they all lived in a commune anyway. Well, and, you know, they printed the Bible in the vernacular, which had never (laughs) happened before. Well, the Gutenberg wasn't. That was still. Oh, really? Yeah, the Gutenberg was just the first printed Bible. Aha. Yeah. Well, I'm an idiot, and now the world knows. (laughs) Listen, you've all gathered, I'm sure, that I pretty much rely on Tom for all that thinking stuff. (laughs) I'm just here to look pretty and sound amazing. Yeah, and have friends. Oh, yeah, I'm very good at having friends. I rely on you for that part, so (laughs) it works out pretty well. It works out. It does. Uh, Isabel says that they should find some socialist books in Thirsk when he drives her there tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, if he was serious. <laughs> right. He's like, I'm always serious about driving. <laughs> it was my first true love before I met Sybil. There should really be more shots of Tom just saying, Sybil! <laughs> Streetcar named Desire style. That would be great. Uh-huh. Edith asks the Dowager if she is feeling better, and the Dowager says that Edith would know if she had stopped by. Boom! (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Edith says not to bully her. She's not up to it. The Dowager says that she knows Rosamond told her, and Edith goes, what? Why? Did she say I was pregnant? She didn't say I was pregnant, did I? She's the worst at this. Yeah, she's terrible. Well, you know what? She really should have freaking read uh, that Married Love book. Yeah. By, uh, what's her name? She really should have. I mean... Because she was clearly thinking about banging this dude. Oh, yeah. She was, you know, but it's the same old to prepare, like, she would feel, she feels less guilty having not prepared for it. I mean, I understand. I had abstinence-only education and made a series of bad choices in my life (laughs) as a result. Right. But it's just, you know, I just find it so frustrating in TV and film because I know pregnancy is more interesting than having sex and then not getting pregnant. Right, right, right. But... Like, it's actually really hard to get pregnant. Yeah. It can only happen, like, three days a year, and I just think we're all really underserved by this myth that you can get pregnant anytime you have sex. Right. It just doesn't make any sense. Right. I was complaining about this to a friend the other day, is that, you know, girls are told you can get pregnant anytime you have sex, which, like, yeah, if you don't know your body. Right, But then when we get married, there's all these narratives about, oh, well, we're trying, and it's really hard. Like, guess what? Either it's hard to get pregnant or it's not hard to get pregnant. Yeah. Like, make a decision, society. (laughs) No. Society is such a bastard. It is. Uh, Anyway, Rosamond just said that Edith needed cherishing. Which, 
guess what, Rosamond and Edith? You two are like dumb and dumber. Like, <laughs> right. what the fuck? Right. If the dowager hasn't covered up a pregnancy or two in her time. Right. Come on. Yeah. I mean, not her own. <laughs> well, no, but she yeah. charts her cycle <laughs> or did before that became not a thing anymore. Right. Yeah. Idiots. Yeah. Well, it's, she still does. It's just much simpler now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still waiting. <laughs> Uh, anyway, yeah. Ugh, people are so stupid. Yes. Like, I just, I'm like shaking my fist at them. Carry on. Blake is discussing Drew, Pigman to the Stars, with Mary. <laughs> and she says she's pleased because the Drews had been at Yew Tree Farm for many years. And the Dowager Countess thinks that, uh, Blake must think that sentimental bosh. But Mary says that Blake has a softer side than they gave him credit for. Blake is glad and that a harder he's... side, if you know what I mean. Oh, Blink. snap. Ew, That gross. was saucy. I don't like thinking about Charles Blake having a boner. Oh, that's, well... You're watching the wrong show, then. I know. <laughs> I really am. But uh, Napier stands awkwardly nearby, ignored by all. Also, uh, hey, Edith, Napier is just standing around. Yeah, he's... Not doing anything. Nobody has addressed a word to him in, like, the last three oh, episodes. Oh, I'm just saying in terms of being the person to do the right thing. Oh, yeah. Like, come on. I think that they make a marvelously... He's like, you know, he's Anthony Strallen, the prequel. Yeah. Like, no, I think... Uh... You know, I mean, I think it would take her a few months to convince Napier that Mary Mary's has never, not, yeah. Well, you know, like, how many men does her vagina have to kill for him to get a clue? <laughs> she doesn't like him. No. At any rate, Mary hopes that she's also been redeemed since she knows that Blake found her snobbish. And Blake says he understands that he came as an envoy of the enemy. And yeah. I say, Get a fucking room, you two. Yeah, and I'd also say... If you were filleting each other anymore, (laughs) everyone would have to leave the room. Right. And I would also say that he found you snobbish because you're very snobbish. She is continuing to be snobbish in this scene. (laughs) Right. Anyway, Nanny comes in with George and Sibby, and uh, she asks if she's early, and Mary says she doesn't think anyone will mind. And McGee says that Lord Grantham would, but he's not here. And just... (laughs) You guys, we can't express to you how McGee McGee is. Like, we thought she was doubling down on McGee in the last episode. No. She might listen to this podcast. <laughs> this is... I'm not convinced that she doesn't. She's like, I'll show them how McGee McGee can be. And we love it. Yes, Look, we do. McGee, shine on, you crazy, weird-looking diamond. <laughs> That's right. George is crying, and Sibby looks pretty cranky. Yeah. They seem to have had a difficult morning. Yeah. Perhaps Sibby didn't get her egg. Possibly. Uh, well, she is just a nasty crossbreed. She may have been infecting yeah. the environment. Uh, so Mary says, one moment, darling, to George, <laughs> right. who is a baby. <laughs> one moment, darling, while mummy puts away her cup, which <laughs> literally takes her all of the time that like, it takes her to say that. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh but Blake then intercepts the baby uh, and says he's turning into quite a bruiser. George does not stop squalling the whole time. Right. Uh, the Dowager Countess says she has to go. Because she does not like this crying baby. No. Or <laughs> probably babies in general. Yeah, it doesn't seem she like her She seems thing. like she's kind of over that. Yeah. Uh, and McGee invites her to stay for dinner, but she declines. And Napier again looks like a prat. <laughs> Meanwhile, Mary is like enchanted by Charles Blake holding her son. Right. I'm like, you get that he doesn't like him right nope anyway Ugh. well i'm not terribly fond of him myself 
Uh, Anna is dressing Mary, uh, and Mary asks her to give Hughes a message, which is that Gilly is coming tomorrow night. Gilly? Yeah. I thought we were rid of him. You were stupid. (laughs) (laughs) So Anna, of course, reacts to that, uh, which Mary misinterprets as Anna disapproving of Mary's encouraging Gilly. Which, you know, fair play. And I'm sure that under different circumstances, she would. (laughs) Yes. She asks Anna if she thinks her feeble... And Anna says it's not that um, and is, you know, upset and won't turn and face Mary. Uh, Mary keeps asking. Anna says it's nothing to bother with. And Mary says, please bother me. Yeah. Um, She's pretty bored. Right. Anna says that Mary must promise not to do anything and tells her uh, about Green, basically. Uh, Mary is is shocked and sits down and, and she wants to tell the police and she wants to tell Gilly. But Anna says no and that Mary promised, which... She didn't. Mm-hmm. But um, she explains that, you know, it's because Bates will kill him and get hanged and all that. So Mary says she'll call Gilly and ask him not to come or not to bring Green. Uh, and Anna says that she's frightened every time Green and Bates are in the Man, same room. somebody please nominate this woman for an Emmy. Like, just her performance here is so good. It is. It's really, yeah. really good. Yeah. So Joanna Froggett, we're giving you the Emmy of our hearts. That's that's right. Down in the kitchen, Mrs. Patmore sends Jimmy Kent up with the savories and Davy with Daisy with the sauce. And with Daisy out of the way, asks Ivy why she's been under hypnosis. <laughs> Ivy claims innocence, but Patmore says she's been mooning about like a sloth underwater, <laughs> right. which is really an apt description of Ivy most of the time. Right? Ivy's like, "Have I'm, you met her?" She's like, "I'm just very stupid. I thought you knew." <laughs> <laughs> it's on my resume. <laughs> Ivy says that her letter were from Alfred. And he's coming up to Yorkshire for his father's funeral, and uh, he wants to marry Ivy, apparently? Yeah. Because she smiled at him. Oh, right. That's that's essentially his whole reasoning. It's just, uh, this is dumb and dumberer downstairs. <laughs> yeah. So he's decided that Ivy should marry him, move to London, and he will find her a job. And Mrs. Patmore thinks Alfred puts a lot in a letter, which we agree. <laughs> yeah. Daisy comes in and says that they're serving the savories. And Mrs. Patmore tells Ivy that they'll talk later and asks Daisy to put the water on for coffee. Daisy is rightly suspicious. Right. She is far less gullible than almost every other character on this show. And that oddly was not enough. the case when we started. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's, she's learned something, has she, Daisy. She has. Well, again, as we've discussed, she was only six when the episode started, <laughs> the series started, so. Uh, Anna comes into the boot room. The famous boot room. That's right. Uh, tells Bates he can finish his shoes tomorrow. It's time to go home. Uh, Bates asks what Anna was saying to Hughes, and she says uh, that it was about Gilly's impending arrival. Bates says that he can't stay away, asks if Mary's sweet on him. And Anna says that they're sweet on each other, but it's not so simple, you know, the yeah. whole thing. Miss Mabel Lane Fox, right. etc. Yes. So as Bates is putting his coat on, he casually mentions Mr. Green mm-hmm. and asks Anna if she's gone off him. He says she liked him so much when he first came and thought he was so funny. And Anna, as she walks away, says, did I? I can't remember. I really like this scene, but I wish this scene had occurred like two episodes ago. Yeah. Like- yeah, no, I, I agree. Because there's even a way to tell this story in a way that's better than the way that they're telling it. Yeah. Like, it is it is weird to me that he wouldn't have asked if she's gone off Mr. Green before now. Right. Particularly given his attitude toward him when she was on him. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> Just barren fellows. Yeah. I roll my eyes at you, sir. Right. I have other complaints, which we will get to. <laughs> 
Upstairs at breakfast, Blake asks Branson if he is pleased with Drew. Branson is, and he's pleased with the Tamworths as well. <laughs> Blake suggests that they should consider dairy if the pigs are a success, and Napier says that could be another job for the splendid Mr. Drew. Edith thinks that he is rather splendid and wants farming to be his life's work. And uh, Edith, you need to calm it down. Yeah. Quit liking farmers. Yeah. It never ends well for you. Right. Carson comes in to say that Lady Rosamond's on the phone for Edith, and Napier asks if Rose has anything planned for the day, and she says, just some shopping, in a way that makes us think that perhaps she is not going shopping. Right. <laughs> in the kitchen, Ivy asks Patmore if she should write to Alfred, and Patmore says if she's sure. Ivy says she doesn't want to marry Alfred, which... Good call, everyone. Yeah. And Patmore says, then there's no more to be said. Uh, Ivy adds that she doesn't want to tie herself down yet. She doesn't know what life has in store. And Patmore says that she is a very optimistic generation. <laughs> uh, Daisy comes in and asks what they're talking about. And Patmore says, nothing. In a, you know, in just such a... Uh, Patmore's never been good no, at this sort of a thing. A lot of people on this show are very bad at lying. And yeah. she's really at the top of the list. I mean, unfortunately, nothing that she has to lie about has... <laughs> consequences <laughs> right but she's just bad at it yeah uh but daisy says she knows that they're up to something edith's on the phone talking to rosamond rather than no one and uh <laughs> rosamond uh and she tells rosamond they don't know when lord grantham's coming back but they must tell mcgee before lord grantham comes back so that they can work out a strategy Which like is a this point. is the first good idea you idiots have had <laughs> right uh, she's had an idea as well, but Mary walks by and Edith changes the subject to say that Rosamond should come stay. And then Mary asks who is on the phone. Edith says Rosamond is coming to check on Granny and uh, asks why Mary is down early. Mary has to check some figures with Tom before he goes to thirst. Are they pig-related figures? Figures? <laughs> You're very funny. <laughs> Thank you. Edith says Mary's quite the businesswoman, and Mary says we must rise to life's challenges, and Edith is in no position to argue <laughs> because she's got a dilly of a pickle to deal with. <laughs> he does. In Thursk, presumably. You mean um, in Russia? That's right. It's okay. very, everybody is wearing fur caps and, you know, doing that dance and everything. And playing Tetris. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> Branson and Isabel get out of the car. Uh, Isabel says to meet in the bookshop in 10 minutes. I'll meet you in the socialist section. <laughs> right. She has to post some letters because the postman doesn't come to her house. Right. She has to drive to Thirsk. Anyway. Uh, so as Branson is walking along, he sees something in a window and he stops and walks into some sort of cafe looking place. And there he sees Rose and Jack Ross. Uh-oh. They're sitting down at a table. Uh, Jack tries to sit across the table from Rose, but she scoots over to sit next to him. She then reaches a hand up and strokes his cheek. Listen, cousins, cheek stroking is the grossest of all sexual gestures. Yeah. If you've ever done it, unironically, you should just slap yourself in the face. <laughs> Ugh, just, it makes me, just my skin crawl. It's so infantilizing and weird. Yeah. Um, so Jack Ross pulls away from that. Both because it's weird and because, you know, their situation. Mm -hmm. Branson, at this point, has seen what he needs to see and heads out. Uh, Rose tells Jack not to be so self-conscious. And Jack says that they're attracting attention. And, uh, in fact, there's an old guy behind Rose that is, like, glaring at them mm -hmm. over his teacup. Rose says that that's their problem and it doesn't have to be ours. Uh, in the street, Branson pauses to look troubled for a moment and then uh, walks off. 
And back inside, Jack tells Rose that he hopes that they're brave enough for this. And Rose says that they are, uh, and that they can teach people about bigger and better values. I'm not sure that's your motivation, Rose. Right. I'm really not. I'm really also not. Jack asks Rose, somewhat pointedly, if McGee knows that she's out. Uh, Rose says that she'll telephone, but it won't matter as long as she's back for dinner. Which she never is! <laughs> right. She never gets back for dinner! <laughs> she hasn't had dinner in five years. <laughs> Waiting for dinner. A play by Lady Rose McClare. Uh, Rose asks if Jack is playing tonight. He says no, uh, so he can stay as long as she likes. And Rose wants him to stay forever, but six o'clock will do. Isabel and Branson are driving along, presumably back to Downton, mm-hmm. uh, loaded down with, you know, communist paraphernalia. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Isabel says that he's not very talkative, and Branson explains why in vague terms and <laughs> is very, you know, darkly hinting that he knows two people who are doing something that will make people unhappy. And it's like, oh, God, just stop, man. Just right. either say what you're meaning or don't. Right. Which, speaking of which, <laughs> we come back downstairs and... uh Baxter's keeping it fresh by doing some hand sewing. Whoa. I know. <laughs> Mosley comes in and asks if she'd like a cup of coffee. And I just want every time that Mosley shows up for the <laughs> Benny Hill music to start playing. She says she doesn't want any coffee. And uh, Mosley says that she won't have to surrender any of her independence if she drinks coffee. Which, like, what? Shut up. <laughs> I get what he's saying. Okay. Well, Baxter uh, finally accepts the coffee. And then Mosley steps forward and he tells Baxter that he knows what it's like to feel fragile and that nobody downstairs really cares much for Mr. Barrow. But uh, she should give everyone downstairs credit for making up their own minds about her. And she walks out, not quite sure what to do with this show of kindness, since she has this dark secret, and I don't know. Like, right. come on, Baxter. Like, well, what's the deal? She's, like, Thomas has all her stuffing, I guess, that got knocked out of her. I don't here's know. My, here's my theory. Thomas is the devil. <laughs> all right. And she sold her soul to him. This all holds up so far. And she has to deliver him uh, a baby to kill every year. Oh. She found out about this <laughs> while watching American Horror Story Coven. <laughs> and, in fact, Thomas is really Lance Reddick. That's right. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. I've always seen a resemblance mm-hmm. there, eh? Uh, yep. They're both male. <laughs> Uh, Isabel and Branson dismount in the village, and by a shocking coincidence, who should happen to be by but the old homely liberal? I fucking hate her. I know. Uh, I used to, the first time through, I didn't hate her so much, but now I'm starting to. She's just the worst. Get on your side, yeah. She's like everything that we hated about Branson. When <laughs> remember when Branson yeah. was trying to like badger Sybil into dating him? Yeah, it's like that, but without any of the charm That's or tr- the Irish accent. <laughs> That's true. Branson tries to introduce her, although of course he does not, in fact, know her name. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she introduces herself as Sarah Bunting. So now we know that. Boo. Uh, she's also continuing her all oatmeal all the time brand of personal style. <laughs> what an idiot. <laughs> Uh, Branson explains to Isabel how they met, and the homely liberal tells Isabel that Branson didn't seem that interested in the liberals, and she is not now convinced by his socialism. Hmm. Branson asks, why not? Come on, Branson. You're a very unconvincing person in general. Right. And in particular, an unconvincing socialist. Yeah. And an unconvincing Irish revolutionary. Yeah, you're just unconvincing all over. (laughs) Yes. But she explains she hadn't known that he's the land agent and son-in-law of our local milord. Branson didn't know he was famous. Uh, dude, 
it's Yorkshire. Not much happens. <laughs> You're right. the only soap opera that's been on for the last <laughs> like three years. Yeah. <laughs> the only liberal asks if he'll defend his principles, and he says, "No, not now." Which I really enjoyed. I wish that. it had ended there, N- and nope. then she had just exploded, <laughs> and we never saw her again. Uh, but sadly, Isabel's meddling sense is tingling, <laughs> uh, and she defends Branson's willingness to question his beliefs. Uh, it's less that he's questioning them, and more that he's abandoned them, Isabel. Like there <laughs> right. is a difference. There really is. The homely liberal says she stayed to argue, but she's a bit late. Mm-hmm. Oh, how convenient. Brand- I think she's stalking him. Uh, well, it's... <laughs> nothing in this episode proves otherwise. That's true. Branson asks if she lives nearby. Apparently, she works at the school, and uh, Branson watches her depart with interest, which is sad. Mm-hmm. Uh, they both agree that the homely liberal knows her own mind. Uh, yeah, but she's a bitch. Right. And like- ugly to boot. <laughs> In Mary's room, Mary is telling Anna that Gilly left the Dalrymples before she called. Anna says Mary did her best, which she did not. Yeah, she did. Anna talked to her about this the previous evening. Right. So she really could have tried calling. like, yeah. And it was before dinner that they had that conversation. It was a perfectly acceptable hour to call someone who was leaving the following day. Right. Anyway. Mary defines whatever she does as her best. Mm-hmm. Branson comes in and Mary points out that he's not wearing tails and asks if he knows that Granny is coming, which he didn't. And he flips in. He's like, oh, God, I'm going to go change. But Mary tells him not to uh, so that Granny can learn about the real world. And Branson says, that's a phrase with more than one definition. And I'm like, shut up. You were cooler when you were a chauffeur. That's true. Anyway, Anna heads out and Branson tells Mary that he's seen something he doesn't want to keep to himself and tells her that he saw Rose. Mary says, yes, he was shopping. Branson says she wasn't, explains that he saw her <laughs> yeah. creepily stroking Jack Ross's face, and he says, that's it. Just wanted to tell you. I've got nothing more to say on the subject. And then he bounces. Yeah. He's like, unless that's some English slang I'm not familiar with, yeah. she was not shopping. Uh, in a downstairs hall, Anna is crying, and Hughes comes up to her, uh, and you know she knows what's up. And Anna asks Hughes not to give her away, that she says she can get through it. Up in the library, Rosamond comes in and greets Edith, who had wanted to talk to her alone before she goes in to see everybody else. Uh, she says she has a plan to keep the baby. Her plan, give it to Drew. You know, Drew can't solve all of your problems, <laughs> right. everyone at Downton Abbey. I know. She's like, well, he's, he's very handsome, and he's working two jobs, so I know he'll have plenty of time for a baby. Drew is the father's unexpected death of this show. Like, the characters <laughs> on the show are like, oh, that'll work. Right. It worked before. <laughs> Just add Drew. <laughs> a Rosmond is not on board with this. She I am says, also not on board with this. Right. Uh, Rosmond says it's very reckless, and she suggests that they, two of them go on an extended trip somewhere and give the baby to a childless couple there. Then the couple will be happy, the baby is happy, and Edith, if not happy, will be free. Mm-hmm. Edith does not like this. Uh, she would not be involved with the baby's life. I think Edith needs to check herself before she wrecks herself. I mean, in as much as that's even possible. She's already pretty much wrecked herself. Yeah. Um, yeah, but Edith asks why her plan is reckless, and Rosamond lists the many, many reasons that it is reckless. And then McGee comes in. She's looking for some list that she needs for Patmore that she left in there and asks if they know that Gilly has arrived. Uh, and then, you know, laments to Rosamond about the bazaar. All I can 
think about is this wretched bizarre. <laughs> Rosamond offers to stay and help, uh, and then tells McGee... Apropos of nothing! <laughs> yes, that she's always wanted to speak better French, so she is going to Switzerland for a few months. Or she says she'll take a few months off and go to Switzerland. And I'm like, take a few months off from what? From being a drain on British society. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm just going to go bring Switzerland down for a while. <laughs> McGee is startled and asks, why not France? McGee's startled face is... This is, uh, this is the most McGee she's ever been. This it is. This is pure, unfiltered no, McGee. Th- this shock, I mean, she's cranked up to 11, if not 12. I think 12. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, Rosamond <laughs> says, you know what the French are like, and that the Swiss are so clean, and then for some reason decides to add that they have nice hospitals... Uh, in case one of us gets sick. Yeah, or is pregnant and we don't want to tell you. Like, why <laughs> right. don't you... God, they're the worst. Fortunately, it's just McGee, who says we, and then Rosamond says that she thought Edith might come keep her company, and Rosamond will pay. And <laughs> McGee, again... Uh, but She's she, like, well, I've been all caught up with the bizarre, but this is weird. Right. She asks Edith what she thinks, and Edith says, I, I'd uh, like to... I think she says, golly, life is full of surprises. Especially when you're on crystal meth. <laughs> <gasps> meth comes to Downton. <laughs> and, uh, but she says she'll head back to see that the boys are keeping the peace. Which, spoiler alert, they're not. Yeah, they're not. They're all fighting over Mary's vagina. And Mary's... I guess it's made of diamonds. And Mary is just sitting, smiling quietly. And, yeah. <laughs> right. So Edith asks Rosamond if they'll be telling McGee, uh, and Rosamond doesn't think that they should. Edith asks if Rosamond can really afford it, this trip, and Rosamond says, why ask when the decision has been made, and heads out. Um, don't they have nothing but money and time? Like, how do you... Uh. Not with Lord Grantham around. Yeah, that's true. At yeah. dinner, the Dowager asks Gilly if he's been wandering around Scotland since they last saw him, and he says that he has. He fished, did a tour of the cousinage, whatever the hell that is. Uh, as, from what I can gather, that just means he went and saw various cousins. Ah, and then a wedding in Ayrshire. Ayrshire? Ayrshire. I don't know how you say that. Right. Presumably he said it, and I missed it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he had time to think, and the Dowager Countess asks about what, and he says his life. Isabel says everyone should think about their life from time to time, but the Dowager Countess predictably disagrees. No life appears rewarding if you think too much about it. Boom! Yeah. She's killing it this episode. She is. And that line in particular, I just love as, like, worldly wisdom. <laughs> Rosamond tells Branson that I gather you've launched yourself into pigs these days, which sounds inappropriate. <laughs> that, yeah, that is a mental image. <laughs> and not one that I would care to, to retain. Right. Branson alludes to Blake and Mary's pig party, and Gilly asks Mary if that's what she hadn't wanted to talk about. Blake and Gilly compliment Mary. Gilly asks if Blake is a pig expert, and Mary says he was that night. McGee thankfully changes the subject, <laughs> announcing Rosamond and Edith's news which rosamond explained she says all she ever learned from her from her governess was please thank you and i have a temperature isabel says that's a useful travel phrase in her isabel way <laughs> right rosamond asks the dowager countess if she remembers the governess she was always in tears oh poor mademoiselle her life was full of complications <laughs> but the dowager countess thinks she enjoyed it yeah and i have to say just that like little four-line exchange there i really enjoyed it just because it was just sort of actual like small talk that they yeah. were making that wasn't like fraught with implications. Mm-hmm. They were just sharing a memory. Yes. 
Uh, Mary asks Edith why she's going and whether it's an incognito search for Mr. Gregson. Which, which is such a bitchy... Like, Mary is yeah. also cranking it up to 11. Yeah. And, like, in an unpleasant... Like, he, the, the guy did disappear. Like, you don't need to make fun of her for what? caring what happened to him. Anyway. But it's... The thing about it, it's in this, in this season, she's... All these boys coming after her has reminded her of how superior mm-hmm. she is to Edith. And- well, and, you know, it's interesting, though, because I watched this horrible movie last weekend, The Shortcut, starring Dave Franco, the lesser Franco. <laughs> wow. Uh, and in it, Dave Franco pretends that he's getting murdered. It's a horror movie. Okay. And, like, it's a prank on his friend. And it's, like, you know, his friend is, like, in tears. And it's, like, he's pulling this prank. He's like, oh, yeah, you cried like a little bitch when you thought your friend was dying. <laughs> like, that's what Mary's doing to you here. Right. Like, why should she not be upset that the man she was planning to marry mm-hmm. died? Yeah. Presumably. Or disappeared. Yeah. Anyway. Branson says not to tease Edith because he is apparently the only decent human being <laughs> left on this show. And Edith says she just fancies getting away for a bit. And the Dowager Countess says, oh, like Gilly, thinking his way around the Highlands. But the Dowager Countess's gaze is fraught with meaning. Mm-hmm. Uh, down in the servants' hall, Daisy announces that she likes Scotland, or would, if she'd ever been there. Which is a weird thing to say. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, but Green says that he has had a belly full of Heather, which, dude, you're not supposed to eat it. Uh, That's your mistake yeah, right there. sheeps do that, sir. <laughs> Mosley asks Hughes if she'll defend Scotland, but she says that Green can think what he likes. Hughes, Anna, and Green all do a little glaring back mm-hmm. and forth. And uh, Jimmy Kent says that so Green will be glad to get back to London then. He agrees. Bates casually asks where Green lives when he's in London, and he says that his lordship has a set at Albany. Jimmy Kent asks if that's handy to the West End, and Green says, are you kidding? It's between Piccadilly and Savile Row. Jimmy Kent is quite jealous. You lucky tyke, which is a weird thing to say, (laughs) but as we've covered, the slang of this period was disturbing. (laughs) Right, it was. Uh, Mosley asks Baxter if she likes London. She says she doesn't. Uh, She was there for a time, but it didn't work for her. Jimmy Kent asks Anna if she fancies a taste of Mr. Green's life. Uh, she says no. She is happy where she is. Yeah. Very upsetting times. Very upsetting. On the main staircase, McGee tells Mary that Rose wants to go to London again, but she thinks she's been there enough. <laughs> Mary agrees, as do we. Rose needs to slow her damn roll. <laughs> yeah. Uh, McGee thinks that Rose needs to save something for when they bring her out. She's worried that she won't seem a novelty. <laughs> and I'm like, this is such a weird custom. But- yeah, very much. McGee says that Rose can help with the bazaar. That'll take her mind off things. Presumably these are the things that Rosamond is leaving behind as well when she's going to Switzerland. (laughs) What do you think she's... Like, what things is she thinking about? I I don't know. At any rate, uh, McGee then very sensibly points out how difficult it is to parent an adult, Mm -hmm. particularly when it's not your actual offspring. Right. And, uh, you know, that she can't just forbid everything because that's not going to work and uh rose is coming up the stairs so mary asks if she can pull her into her room and have a word yes i in mary's room mary asks anna to step out for a minute uh, and says that rose is going to bed early for her Mm -hmm. and rose says that oh I, i had a tiring day Mary says, so I heard, or at least I heard that it was interesting. Whether or not it was tiring, you'll have to tell me. Boom! Yeah. 
Rose asks Mary who told her, and Mary says that she only wants Rose not to lose control of her life. Uh, Rose is defensive and self-righteous about it, um, and imperialist nonsense, she says, and you'll tell me he needs to be horsewhipped and all this stuff. Uh, and she then says that she's going to marry him. She doesn't care what it costs, and she won't keep it a secret. Not after I've told Mummy. I want to see her face crumble when she hears. Which, way to rhetorically undermine yourself, idiot. Yeah. Like, way to- get, get, get a clue, get some self-awareness. Yeah. So this, this is not- the, This is the scene that makes it clear, okay, this is not a good idea. Yeah. Very bad idea. Yeah. Well, and again, I just wish that they would show us more of this relationship developing because I think even if that's sort of, you know, even if that's where she lands rhetorically with Mary, Mm -hmm. there is a story that can be told about them really investing in each other in this relationship. Right. And that's an interesting story that I would like to see, but it seems to be occurring primarily off screen. Right. It's a little frustrating. It is. I Um, agree. The next morning downstairs, Michi tells Blake and Napier that she feels the family is driving them away and they all, not at all, a bit. <laughs> yeah. That's in, I started using it later in this recap, but I've just started using the term British for every time somebody's <laughs> saying, oh, you're too kind. No, you're too kind. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right, great. Yeah. So they're they're Britishing it up, yeah. and uh, Gilly has offered them a lift home to London. McGee hopes that they'll be back soon. Uh, Charles Blake wishes McGee luck with the infamous bazaar. McGee jokingly asks him to stay and help, but I don't think she's kidding. Well, she's not kidding per se. I think he was. I mean, certainly he was joking when she said he was tempted. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah for sure. Yeah, uh, Mary thanks him for all his advice and for their pig venture, and nobody speaks to evil and. <laughs> yeah. It's entirely possible he's just been dead the whole time. <laughs> yeah. He's a he's ghost all... that only Mary can see. <laughs> yeah, because he's standing in all of these scenes just sort of looking at it like, oh, hello, how fun. <laughs> uh, honestly, could we not have gotten a better ghost? Mr. Pamuk would have been a much better ghost. Uh, well, he would have been much more stylish mm-hmm. and, you know, would have once again, Blake is Mr. Pamuk's ghost in this scenario, mm-hmm. really. So anyway, they all, you know, move toward the car. Then Gilly hangs back with Mary and uh, says that he had to swing by because he didn't want to leave Blake with Mary, even though he just did precisely that for God knows how long he was in (laughs) Scotland. Right. He asks Mary to let him see her the next time she's in London. And Mary says there's no point. She's not ever going to be his mistress. Gilly says he's decided to call off the engagement, but he hasn't had time to call London yet. Uh, note to all British women, if you have a fiancé, keep him away from Lady Mary. <laughs> yeah. She is incorrigible. Well, and it's not even, like, she's not even trying. Mm-hmm. Like, she very much tried to keep Matthew with Lavinia, and she very much tried to keep Blake with, or Gilly with Maybelline mm-hmm. Fox, but... Yeah, and try to keep uh, Blake with those pigs. <laughs> right. He's married to the pigs now. <laughs> yes, the Tamworth pigs. Oh, the Tamworths. That's a fortunate <laughs> match. <laughs> Mary asks him to think seriously about calling off his engagement because she's not on the market, although sometimes she almost wishes that she was. She's enjoying this far too much. She's, I mean, look. She, <laughs> I get it. I really do get it. Yeah. But she needs to calm the fuck down. She, she's, I mean, yeah. She's getting a little bit big for her not on the market bridges. Yeah. Is all I'm saying. Yeah. Like, at some point, people are going to ask you to, like, you know put up mm-hmm. if you're gonna be so you mean put out well yeah <laughs> you know in the holy bonds of matrimony but still 
you know, you'd think they'd be a little more forward since she's been married and knows everything. But <laughs> I mean, you know, Gilly more or less has, though. He's That's- like, hey. But I like, I do like what she says here, where she says, I'm never going to be your mistress. That's not me at all. Yeah. And I just like that she knows that about herself. Right. And Agreed. expresses that. I think it's great. Yeah. And not that nobody could be his mistress, or that it's not a conceivable thing. It's yeah, just it's not, just not her. for her. Yeah. Yeah. She missed out on that Edwardian extravaganza of infidelity. <laughs> uh, out front, Napier says that McGee has been kind, and McGee says that they'll miss him. Maybe he's a ghost that only McGee can see. <laughs> that seems a lot more reasonable. <laughs> that does seem a lot more reasonable. Uh, Napier said if it was his choice, he would never be away. Which, it's not going to happen, Brony. Right. Why you don't just, you get a clue? I would stay here for the rest of my life, being ignored by all, looking Again, foolish. Again, Edith. She's right there. She is Super right there. Super pregnant. Super desperate. Yep. Yep. Needs some help. Uh, Green stands by looking evil, <laughs> like just standing there glaring at mm-hmm. everyone. Uh, and Mary stops Gilly and asks him how he feels about Green. He says he's still not keen on him, which is, again, very convenient. Uh, then Blake comes over to say goodbye, and they all drive off, and the crawly women watch them go. In one of several odd shots this episode of a bunch of women lined up mm-hmm. mcgee says she's sorry to see them go rose says not as sorry as mary and asks what the group noun is for suitors and mcgee suggests desire and rosman says yes a desire of suitors and they're all very clever yes and mary says if you're all going to keep talking nonsense i have better things to i do. agree but also a desire of suitors is a pretty good noun. yeah that was uh, yeah I, I give him props for that yeah all right baron fellows well played <laughs> that's like one <laughs> right how do you account for the 1,279 <laughs> points that you haven't gotten? I can't. In the kitchen, Ivy tells Mrs. Patmore that she has uh, sent a letter to Alfred and turned him down. Right. Mrs. Patmore says that he'll probably still come since he's going to be in Yorkshire for the funeral anyway. Daisy comes in and overhears a little bit and she insists that they tell her what's going on. Mrs. Patmore gives in and along with Ivy, uh, they fill her in. So Daisy bitches. So his heart's broken properly this time. Are you satisfied now? Mrs. Patmore says to just leave it there. They don't want to fall out. And Daisy says, we can't fall out. We've never fallen in. And then she rolls the fuck out of some dough. <laughs> yeah, she does. Like that dough doesn't know what hit it. No, that dough is like, whoa, <laughs> I can't wait to get in the oven. This is too much. <laughs> At the Dower House, Edith and Rosamond are having tea with the Dowager. Uh, Rosamond wonders, when will everyone propose to marry? <laughs> but the Dowager cha- changes the subject and says that she has really asked them there to find out why Rosamond came to Downton. Rosamond protests her innocence, and the Dowager says that she sees she'll have to take the slow path. Mm-hmm. Uh, and recites the various suspicious things that they've done to them. Uh, she says that she knows Rosamond has no interest in French. If she wishes to be understood by a foreigner, she shouts. <laughs> the Dowager says that they should tell her the truth, and Edith says that if she did, the Dowager would never speak to her again. And the Dowager says that in that case, she has told her the truth, but she would like to hear it enunciated more clearly. Boom! Yeah. She's killing it, y'all! She is. She's doing very well. She is. As the servants get up from their breakfast, Carson announces that they're starting to set up the bazaar, and McGee needs all hands on deck. He asks Jimmy Kent and Mosley to keep an eye on things, and Jimmy Kent asks if they get paid extra. And Carson says he'll get a clip on the ear if he keeps up that kind of lip. Right. Which, I mean, kind of, but also, like, Jimmy Kent, uh, maybe you guys should have a union. (laughs) Mrs. Hughes will ask Mrs. Patmore for refreshment for the village people. 
The village people. That's right. The village people are performing at the bazaar, and they thought Jack Ross was scandalous. <laughs> wow. I just like to think what the village people at this time would sing, like, Young whore, <laughs> you've been on your knees. I said, Young whore, you could stop if you please. And it's a song about the Whore Institute. Like, <laughs> Come on and stay at the Whore Institute. It's always fun at the Whore Institute. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. No, I, I like that. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't have as much of a fun dance associated with it. Well, they it. could pretty much have the same, you know, outfits, you know? Oh, yeah. That's definitely like, true. Like, you know, a nice period-appropriate, uh, you know, uh, policeman's outfit. And, uh, <laughs> right. You know, uh, was there, like, an Indian or, like... I think there was. If it was British, it should be, Which, like, it should be like, a continental Indian, like, from India. Well, it could be. Or I was just going to say, in that time period, that particular costume was much, you know, less... Uh, Upsetting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So... Down at the servants' hall, Hughes asks Patmore to have sandwiches and beer ready, which is good advice for anyone at any time. Agreed. Uh, Patmore says that she has gotten a letter from Alfred confirming that he will be arriving on Saturday, which, wait for it, that's the same day as the bazaar. Oh, snap! Wow. It's all happening. That's right. It's bizarre. <laughs> it's a bizarre bazaar. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> we haven't seen the half of it. Uh... <laughs> Patmore turns and looks at Daisy, who scuttles off. And Hughes asks Patmore if Alfred knows that there's no hope with Ivy. And Patmore says that's why he wrote to Patmore rather than writing to Ivy. Hughes says that it won't be easy for Daisy. And Patmore says that she was thinking she'd give Daisy the day off. And Hughes doesn't care because she's not the one that'll have to do the extra work. Mm -hmm. So a a couple things. One is that why, like, just let Daisy have a rough day and then be done with. Like, I don't know. I, I found this... I agree, but, but whatever. Anyway. Uh, and the second thing, this is just a random thought I had, is that we never, the people that Hughes directly supervises, yeah, we the, basically never see, which is like the housemaids. Like the ladies' maids, yes, but they're kind of, you know. Well, but I mean, Anna used to be a housemaid and Gwen, so I mean, I we've, guess that's we've true. seen her do that. It's just that they've all left for better shows and stuff. Yeah, that's true. Or anyway. more institutes, as the <laughs> right. case may be. In the library. McGee has disastrous news. Oh, no. The man selling ices is ill, so she's got to find another. Wow. And the grocers from Easingwald and Malton can't be side by side, and now she has to decide the house menus with Mrs. Patmore. She's literally standing with two separate <laughs> letters, wobbling them back. It's, just, it's, it's a cartoon. Right. And she's telling all this to Rose, who's just sitting there like, and? So? Oh, you wanted me to pull my weight. <laughs> What does that phrase mean? <laughs> I was thinking, I'd rather not. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, Rose is like reading a magazine. Like yeah. She's like, I don't give a shit. Uh, McGee's just at this point where she no longer is registering people's <laughs> discreet identity. She's just all bizarre all the time. And I mean, look, and I've been in that space. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It's a place and it's a thing that happens yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, so, Mrs. Patmore has been the cook, though, for many years. Like, right. why do you have to, like, go, go over, over the menus? Yeah, just say, hey, Patmore, cook us something nice. Like, hey, you've cooked for every bazaar <laughs> in the last 20 years. Can you just do that again? Yeah. Anyway, Mary uh, says she'll do that. So maybe, you know, she'll actually just <laughs> be like, hey, do whatever. Yeah. Like, we're all busy. You know, the pigs, they're here. and I really don't care. <laughs> McGee is very grateful and she starts to head out uh, Rose asks when Lord Grantham's coming back McGee doesn't know they've had no word from him in days what a jerk 
Uh, McGee walks out. What? He's in the middle of the Teapot Dome scandal. How long does it take to send a telegram? I Come don't on. know, Tom. Everything that I know about <laughs> telegrams I learned from Deadwood, and that technology is outdated at this point. Well, Let me I- take that back. Deadwood and also the telegram sending scenes and all the various uh, Titanic adaptations that I've seen. <laughs> That's true. You know, this is what he has all the servants for, I assume. Anyway. Well, okay, fine. He could probably get Thomas to send something. Yeah. Well, Thomas is busy with all those handsome stewards. Oh, probably. <laughs> I would think so. I hope so. Right? So McGee leaves and then Rose folds her newspaper in a very meaningful manner. Mary's like, uh, I can see that you're asking for my attention, so let's get going. <laughs> right. Rose says she has to tell someone or she'll just explode. Mary, knowing the answer, says, tell me what? And yep, Rose has gotten herself engaged to Jack Ross, I guess, on the telephone? Apparently, like, yeah. That's the least or romantic engagement story I've ever heard. By letter? Like, yeah. What's, uh... I feel like she just decided that they were engaged. <laughs> I think you may be right. I don't think that they actually... Again, this is why I would have liked to have seen more of this stuff, because I think a lot of it is her just railroading him into things. Yeah, yeah. Which, you know, is something that happens all the time. Sure. And I totally believe in, you know, in his position, in her position. Right. You know, this beautiful, young, uh, you know, yeah. noble woman is showering you with praise and, and all this stuff and getting you gigs. Like, why wouldn't you do this? Yeah. But anyway, I'm annoyed with you, Rose. Yeah. And rightly so. I hope you got laid out of the deal. Right? We know she's not a virgin. Right. So, who can say? She did have a dreamy time with him. She did. Like, I'd like to think they got into some business. I I think they probably did. You know, she's she's a woman of the world, and he's a singer. Like, that's the whole point of becoming a singer. (laughs) Right. You know, the pussy. That's that's always been my understanding. Mm -hmm. I saw various trailers for Almost Famous. I think I know what's (laughs) up. In the Dowager's sitting room, Isabel arrives asking what was so urgent, and the Dowager wants her to have luncheon today. Uh, Isabel is surprised but says okay, although she says she ought to go back and tell Mrs. Field. Like, do they not have a phone at Crawley House? Yeah, they may not. The Dower House? I guess not. Well, they, they called... I'm trying to think, like, Dr. Clarkson said he was going to call the family when the Dowager was sick, but maybe he had to go somewhere else. I don't no, know. I don't think so. I, I, think the Dowager, I think the Dowager probably has a telephone, but I think probably Crawley House might not. Huh. I don't know how widespread they are at this point. Right. But. Anyway, um, the Dowager explains that Lord Merton is coming, and Isabel quite helpfully says, Mary's godfather. <laughs> um, which, to be honest, I, I completely thought that Baron Fellows had just decided that Mary's godfather existed. Oh, I did too, existed. yeah. Uh, but then I went back and looked it up, and he was in uh, Series 3, Episode 1, with the uh, the party that Mikel was at. Oh, the, the indoor picnic? Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was there for that. Uh, the Dowager explains that the luncheon with Lord Merton was fixed years ago, which I assume is a metaphor. I hope so, because that's really depressing. <laughs> right. But now that it's come, Lord Grantham is gone, McGee is too busy with the bazaar, obviously, and Mary's chucked, which it seems means, uh, you know, canceled. That sounds more like she's just tired to me. Right. I don't know why, but, yeah. like, tuckered or something? Anyway. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, as we soon learn, she's taking an abrupt trip to London. Yes. So. Anyway, Isabel suggests that Rosamond could come, but apparently Rosamond can't stand Lord Merton. Though, to be fair, Rosamond can't stand anyone. Except kind of Edith, but even then, not really. Yeah, that's kind of condescending. Speaking of which, the Dowers suggest, the 
Dowager says that Edith might be free, and Isabel hopes so, as Isabel is a poor substitute for the entire Crawley family. The Dowager Countess says, hmm, yes, but you're better than nothing. And Isabel says, how warming you make that sound. You know, I am glad that she's sort of asserting herself a little bit. Like, you know, yeah, yeah. she just, she should. Yeah. Anna comes into the boot room, the famous boot room, and <laughs> tells Bates she's glad to find him. Like, did you look anywhere other than the boot room? Because that was your first mistake. Right. Everyone's always in the boot room. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, it's it's like that Key and Peel sketch where they keep trying to leave the party and then they keep getting sucked <laughs> back into the party. Yeah. Just any door you open in doubt, <laughs> you wind up back room. in the boot room. <laughs> All doors lead to the boot room. Yeah. Well, the one leads to Narnia, but the rest of them... <laughs> I'd rather go to the boot room myself. (laughs) Anna asks for his help with some shoes and explain that Mary suddenly has to go to London and that Anna has to go with her. And Bates asks when she'll be back. She says late Wednesday. Anna says it's not fair that she stopped him from going to New York and now she's off to London. Bates says don't be silly. And I agree because those are two different places. Well, and And wildly different time frames. Exactly. And it's like you've both been to London before. Like people are going to London constantly now on this show. Like calm the fuck down. Yeah. Like, they literally can't keep Rose out of London. Yeah, going to London doesn't mean what it did in 1912. Yeah. I know that that's shocking for all of you, but it's true. Before the war. (laughs) Um, Bates strolls ominously into the Carson cave and tells Carson that he'd like to go to York tomorrow. Carson says that Bates has no duties at Downton, so I don't know why he's scrubbing boots all the ding-dong day, but... It's how he's dealing with his post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, That's fair. Ever since he was wounded in the leg, boots are the only (laughs) thing that bring him comfort. Um, Carson says, Carson says that he still doesn't understand why Bates isn't in New York, so he can hardly object to York. Jokes! I'm beginning to see why the cheerful Charlies didn't make it. No, and you can kind of see Carson mentally patting himself on the back for this. That's the funniest thing I've ever said. Uh, the violin music of villagers working under the kindly gaze of their master's plays (laughs) as the tents for the bazaar are being erected. Uh, FYI, so when Tom (laughs) was making the synopsis for this episode that we worked from, he said that it got real socialist toward the end. So just be aware that that is happening. Yes. I have no problem with this, (laughs) but you might. So people are going hither and yon and various residents of uh, Highclere get brief cameos standing on ladders and stuff. And McGee carries a clipboard and points at things. Carson watches her do that. And Baxter and Molesley exchange a glance. Some proto-carney sets up a ring the bell game and Jimmy Kent asks for a go. And the proto-carney says that A, it's not ready. And B, Jimmy Kent is a bit of a shrimp. Jimmy Kent promises to teach him a lesson by giving him some money on Saturday. I'm just saying, Jimmy Kent just got played by that carny hard. Oh, yeah. You're a bit of a shrimp. Mm-hmm. You can prove your manliness by coming and giving me all of your money. Uh, listen, dude, he uh, is a very good proto carny. He's founded a generation of carnies that lives on to this day. Mm-hmm. I hope. So, Molesley says that he's never had a go at a Ring the Bell game, and Jimmy Kent says it's not Molesley's sort of thing. Uh, so there's one thing that we can be sure of. There is not going to be a comical scene later wherein Jimmy Kent fails to ring the bell, but then Molesley succeeds in doing so. Yeah, definitely not, absolutely not, not. going to happen. We can all sleep easy. <laughs> right. Not going to happen. Clearly. 
Uh, in the kitchen, Jimmy Kent asks Pat Moore for more sandwiches and more beer. I again approve. <laughs> uh, Pat Moore says that they're like a plague of locusts out there. Beer drinking locusts. Uh, <laughs> Those sound like fun ass locusts. <laughs> yeah. Every 17 years, we like to party. <laughs> we like, we like to party. Oh, locusts. You came and you drank without paying. Let's continue, shall we? <laughs> yes. Uh, Mosley tells Baxter that he likes the bazaar and hopes that she will. He would. Yeah. Uh, Jimmy can, Jimmy Kent suggests that Mosley can help Baxter like the bazaar, wink, wink. And Patmore calls Jimmy Kent a cheeky devil, which I believe was the first line in his resume. <laughs> <laughs> cheeky devil and footman, James Kent. <laughs> That's right. Part-time gigolo. <laughs> Just uh, until I make it. <laughs> right. Just to pay for college. <laughs> <laughs> Daisy tells Patmore that she knows Alfred is coming Saturday. She had overheard it. Uh, Patmore says that she was going to mention it to ask if Daisy would like to be away. Daisy asks about the work, but Patmore says the work will mostly be done by then. Uh, and Daisy hesitates, and Patmore says that she wouldn't mind. Uh, Daisy, you own... Wait a, a minute. Daisy asks if she can go see Mr. Mason. Ah, on high the five! Woo! Farm! <laughs> yes. Uh, Patmore says that's a good idea, which it is. And should have happened much earlier in the season. That's right. Uh, and that Daisy can stay away as late as she likes. So, like, six? <laughs> right. <laughs> like, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> McGee and Mary walk towards the bazaar. Mary says she can't explain why she has to go to London, but promises that McGee would approve. Like, they really should have called this <laughs> season Downton Abbey Secrets. <laughs> Downton Abbey can't explain, but is sure you would approve. <laughs> they walked up to uh, Rosamond and Rose, which, again, Baron Fellows. Uh, Do you look. only have, does your name book only have 15 names in it? <laughs> So they ask what's going on. McGee says that Mary's going to London. Mary says that she'll be back the following night. Rose begs to go. Mary says no. And McGee gives her a look. Yeah. Uh, Rose asks why not. And Mary says, because Mama needs you here. And then she kisses McGee and starts to leave. Rosamond asks if she'd like to stay at her place. Mary's like, oh, yes, you're a lifesaver. I'm like, how have you not already sorted this out? Right. You use Aunt Rosamond like a hotel. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, anyway, Rosamond has told Mead that he could visit his sister in Swindon, where they make the Tuesday next books. Uh, but they'll do the best that they can. Mary thanks her, and Rosamond says to McGee, how mysterious. And I'm like, yeah, it's a hell of a lot more mysterious than your fucking backwater, <laughs> let's go to Switzerland plan. Yeah, That was concocted she, by babies. Notice how she hasn't given the whole thing away already. Yeah, good job, Mary. If I had a secret pregnancy, that's who I would talk to. But, of course, Edith and Mary hate each other, so that's not going to work. <laughs> right. So Branson's driving through the countryside and in another shocking, shocking coincidence finds the homely liberal standing by her disabled car. So he stops and asks what's what. Uh, the homely liberal says her friend has gone for help. Branson asks if he can have a look. They British about it. Branson says that he was just on his way to Skipton to see suppliers and compare prices. And the homely liberal is very condescendingly impressed that he knows She's just such a bitch. And not in a fun upper class way like Mary. Just in a mean, jerky way. She's just sneering the whole time. Branson says, to quote my wife's grandmother, you've been reading those socialist newspapers again. 
and she asks if it's wise for Branson to look at her car, and he says she obviously didn't hear his whole story and that he was the family chauffeur, which that's real plausible. That's that she, the only – that's the hook of the story. Right. That's the that's what you start by explaining, and then you fill in the rest. Maybe she has amnesia. <laughs> it could be. Maybe she's actually Anastasia, <laughs> last scion of the Romanov family. <laughs> Or she just, like, ran into a wall at some point, yeah. which would explain, anyway. <laughs> Why her face looks <laughs> like that. <laughs> yes. Uh, anyway, uh, the homely liberal is very glad that a strong, capable man has come along to take charge of her situation. Yeah, she's not a very good liberal. Yeah. She is not one of the new women, I don't think. Mm-mm. I think she just wants a piece of that landed gentry pie. <laughs> she does. That's what I think. At the Dower House, Merton puts his cup down and says it was a splendid luncheon, which is quite a change for him. They are British for a bit, and Merton explains that he can't order food because a husband is told so often that he's going to die first, you never think you're going to have to manage on your own. Isabel agrees that her own dead husband was also incompetent, and uh, Merton says he's very interested that her husband was a doctor. Uh, Merton had wanted to study medicine, but his father didn't didn't see it as a profession for a gentleman. Isabel classily interrupts him to say... Yeah, I was like... Isabel, wait, calm down. Like, why are you so defensive at all times about everything? That's a re- I don't even have a good answer. Yeah. Because, I mean, I blame it on Matthew's death, but she's been this way the whole time. Exactly. Anyway, Merton doesn't think he'd have gone that far uh, in that rude description, but it wasn't <laughs> suitable for a peer, his right. father thought, which is a completely different thing. I mean, yeah. if you are a peer and you're active in that world... You can't, you know, you can't be a doctor and a politician at the same time. It's true. You can be a doctor and then a politician, which I'll have to find an example to rebut what I just said. <laughs> but anyway, Isabel says she'll have to try and find an example of a peer who has been a doctor. Right. Anyway, I want to punch her in the face. Sure. So there's a pause and Isabel gets up to leave, but Merton offers to take her home. Uh, they British a bit and then agree. The Dowager Countess rings for Spratt and Edith says she's also going to go. The Dowager Countess says, not so fast. I want to speak with you. Again, very poorly disguising the fact that like she wants to talk about something secret. Well, I don't think she cares whether she's disguising it or not. Yeah, I guess so. They certainly haven't troubled themselves. Yeah. Yeah, but the Dowager has uh, noticed that uh, old Murdy has taken quite the shine to Isabel. Yes, she is looking very interestedly at their back and forth. Yeah, she's uh, also perplexed. <laughs> yeah. Because she can't understand why anyone would like <laughs> Isabel like, as anything other than a punching bag. <laughs> Uh, so Branson tightens some bolt or something and then get out, gets out from under the homely mobile. Um <laughs> Uh, she asks if he was still chauffeur when he married Sybil. He says it's a long story. They're just now getting to that? Right. The homely liberal says everything with him is a long story, uh, which is like, yeah, it's been 10 years. Yeah. A lot of long stories. But Branson says that that one had a happy ending for a time. There's a pause, and then the homely liberal just abruptly says, I know she died. It's so horrible! <laughs> yeah. Like, it's... I... You know, because I mean, you know what? She could have said, I'm so, I am so sorry that she died. Right. Or, or perhaps something. not using the word died. Yeah. There's a lot of ways she could have finessed this. Like, it was probably going to be at least a little awkward, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, the homely liberal says she must have been unusual and independent. Branson concurs. And the homely liberal says that it's nice that they asked him to stay. Branson says that uh, he has a little daughter and it seemed the right thing. The homely liberal says it gives her a kinder view of the family. 
And Branson asks what she has against them, and she says nothing, but she doesn't really warm to their type. Uh, Branson says that he doesn't believe in types, he believes in people, and the zombie Karl Marx rises from the earth and smites Branson. Hooray! Yeah. Oh, and singes the homely liberal in the process. (laughs) So it's a win-win for everyone. That's right, exactly. No, it doesn't matter... It doesn't matter how nice any particular aristocratic family is. If the system depends on the people with the power happening to be nice people, then it's a bad system. Mm -hmm. Anyway. Look, babe, we hate the homely liberal. We're angry (laughs) at Branson. I don't know that there's much we can do about this. The, uh, you're Not right. with Baron Fellows <laughs> pulling the strings. You're right. That's the real issue here. <laughs> uh, anyway, the sadly unsmited Branson uh, just asked the homely liberal to give the car a try, and of course it's fixed. She says thanks and drives off, so apparently her friend can just go fuck herself. Theory does not have a friend. <laughs> busted her own car <laughs> just waiting for this guy to drive by she's knowing been there. full well that he had been the chauffeur yeah she's mm. she's been there for five days <laughs> she's really dedicated <laughs> well sadly she's looking awfully successful well and far. again like can he not just have a normal post-civil relationship or why does he have to have a relationship at all i yeah. like he got raped <laughs> isn't that enough <laughs> Apparently not. I mean, you know what? I'll, I'll say this. I like the homely liberal more than I like Edna Braithwaite. Okay, look, that's true. <laughs> they are separated by many rungs yeah. of hatred. <laughs> yeah. But Jesus. Still. Just, still. Yeah. Edith and the Dowager Countess walk through Dower Gardens, mm-hmm. uh, which presumably young Peg is tooling around <laughs> somewhere. Right. <laughs> Remember young things. Peg? Yeah. Peglet. He, oh, Peglet. <laughs> Aw, I miss Peglet. Yeah. I wish Peglet was working with the piglets. <laughs> that would be fun. He, that could, would... he could be a pig man. <gasps> Peg the pig man. Ah! <laughs> Anyway. Uh, the gardens are very nice. They are nice. Uh, well, Dowager Countess had the best gardener in the county. That's correct. That's a good point. So Edith also looks great again here. Yeah. The hat that she's wearing. Oh, yeah. Like, Just super nice. Yeah. The Dowager Countess reluctantly agrees with Rosamond in Ray uh, giving the baby to the pig man. <laughs> right. The real pig man. Which you would think that right there, giving the baby to the pig man. Like, just that sentence. What are you, Aren't you already to your baby? Yeah. Like, come on. She says that keeping the child would be... I love this baby more than any pig. (laughs) And that's saying so much. She says that keeping the child would be a permanent sort of Damocles uh, over Edith's head. Right. And Edith says she can't bear giving it away. And is it right that it should grow up Swiss? (laughs) What? What? They're perfectly neutral. There is no right or wrong. There is only Swiss. It's like, what's... They got all that chocolate and those army knives and watches. And eventually, that baby's probably going to come into some Nazi gold. I think this is a great plan. Like, if you want to say, is it right it should grow up without its, you know, biological mother or something? I, I'd still object, but at least I understand why you're saying yeah. that. The Dowager Countess agrees with me and says that Switzerland has everything to offer, <laughs> except perhaps conversation. <laughs> Edith says, what if Gregson returns? And the Dowager Countess uh, says she advises starting again. The Dowager Countess says she'll pay for everything on this trip. And right. Edith says that Rosamond is already offered. But the Dowager Countess says that she'll already be too much in Rosamond's debt. Anymore and she'll start exacting annual tribute. <gasps> like the Hunger Games. <laughs> Edith Everdeen. Wow. See, actually, this works out great because Edith's baby being raised by the pig man will actually give that baby like an advantage when it comes to the Hunger Games. But it's not being raised by the pig man. It's being raised by a Swiss couple. 
Well, no, that's Edith's plan was to pig man. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Ah, okay. Yeah. Oh, so she was expecting to pay exacting tributes. Yeah. I don't know. I just like the idea of like pig related skills being involved. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know what you're getting for Christmas. <laughs> A brood of Tamworths. <laughs> That might violate our lease. <laughs> I think it definitely will. <laughs> Unless we can convince our uh, building manager that they're cats. <laughs> no, those are those are not pigs. They are kittens. <laughs> I did not think it was that funny, but you did. <laughs> I just like the idea that they have like little like ears on their head. Yeah, or and we'd put whiskers on them. <laughs> we'd have to straighten their curly tails. <laughs> That sounds painful, though, for the little pigs. Yeah, we wouldn't want that. Ah, now I really want a piglet. <laughs> I'm sorry that we've, you know, stirred this desire up. <gasps> Me too. You know, I never knew that I wanted a pig until now, so yeah. uh, we've all learned something today. <laughs> uh, Merton and Isabel are walking towards her cottage as his car parked strangely far away. Uh, you know, it's very hard to find parking in Grantham Village. Oh, jeez, that's true. Um, or Downton Village. What is it called? I don't know. They always just call it the village. Yeah, that's true. Well, plus, you know, with the Church Bazaar coming up, you know. Oh, yeah. Crowds. People, are, people have turned out. That's right. Uh, Isabel asks what Merton's children do. He says that they both work. Larry's in banking and Tim's in the diplomatic, which is just a weird thing to say. And I feel like is why Britain had some diplomatic problems in its day. <laughs> anyway. they couldn't communicate clearly. <laughs> right. And they just regarded it as a place to dump their disappointing sons. <laughs> and then he says, so what about yours? And Isabel says that Matthew was a lawyer. And then Merton, Mary's godfather, asks if Matthew has given it up. And Isabel is like, uh, he's dead. Maybe they really did fix the date years ago and they just don't <laughs> talk to him in between. <laughs> I know, like... He's Does married. he not read the papers? Did he like not, did, Earl's heir dying in freak accident? Did he seems not like. come to Matthew's funeral? Oh my god! Like what a dick! Yeah, um, was he too busy ordering outdated hats? <laughs> yeah, his hat is egregiously bad. Yeah, not a good hat. Um, Although I do like to think that that was a deliberate detail. Oh yeah, I mean he's an old dude. Yeah. It makes sense. Um, well, and his wife has died, so she can't right, right. Be keeping him abreast of current trends. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, Merton says that he had basically forgotten who he was talking to for a moment, uh, so that's still weird. I call shenanigans Baron Julian. Yeah. Uh, anyway, he asks how Mary is, and Isabel says it was slow to start, but she's on her way. Merton had heard that Mary and Matthew were well-suited. Just heard, apparently. Uh, and Isabel says that they were, which made it harder, but gives you strength in the end, as we know. They've at this point arrived at a door, which Merton knocks on, and then he says that he doesn't really know that, that he and Lady Merton weren't really meant to be together. Uh, they struggled on, as everybody did in those days, but he's not sure now how sensible it was. He envies Isabel's memories, but he can't pretend to match them. And I have to say, like, I don't really like this character much or his presence, but this I really like this guy's performance. No, he's doing, you know, a lot with very little. Yeah, yeah. I just, he's, his air, I, I just like it. The heir of Merton. <laughs> that sounds like a series in, in and of itself. No. Mary walks up to the stage door of the Lotus Club and asks some rando if Mr. Ross is there and announces herself as Lady Rose's cousin. Jack Ross is practicing uh, an unidentifiable song as yeah. Mary comes in. He's like, la, 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 la. 
royalty free. <laughs> no. Hey, Jack Ross, I've got a song for you. You can stay at the Whore Institute. Come on and stay at the Whore Institute. Yeah. Yeah, that's going to be uh, controversial. <laughs> <laughs> More controversial than uh, being engaged to a uh, Marquis's daughter? Good question. So uh, he says he was wondering if it would be her. Rose had called and said she told Mary that they're engaged, and he offers her tea. And the table that he sits her at has two beer bottles on it, <laughs> and he clears them away and suggests that the that Mary is there to tell him that the Flinchers would uh, find a black son-in-law preposterous, almost as preposterous as his pronunciation of Flincher <laughs> as Flintshire. Yeah. Uh, Given at, that Rose would have in- introduced herself as the, you know, the children yeah. of Lady Flincher. Like, anyway. anyway. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, the guy, Gary Carr, has clearly, you know, worked hard to make a <laughs> thick and fluffy American accent <laughs> to keep him warm on the cold, <laughs> cold Yorkshire evenings. Uh, Mary says that Lord Grantham would be, oh, sorry, uh, he says that Lord Grantham would also be upset at the prospect of a black uh, nephew-in-law. Yeah. Is that a thing? I don't know. Mary says that Lord Grantham would be more upset by his profession as a singer than his race. And uh, Jack Ross, like, laughs. And I'm like, this is, uh, God. Moving on. Anyway. She asks Jack Ross if he's sure, saying that marriage is a difficult situation, even in the best of times, when everybody wants it. And Jack suggests that people will be pulling them apart. And Mary says, every hour of every day. Jack sits down with the tea, and Mary asks if he thinks Rose loves him. And then Jack asks whether or not Mary believes in them. And she says, I believe in you, but I'm not so sure about her. And she handles it very well. She, she says, she says that mainly Rose wants to shock her mother, whom she hates. Jack laughs and then says that his mother said that Rose was, you know, must be proving some point. Mm-hmm. And he says that Mary has a lot in common with his mother, which she accepts as the appropriate compliment. Mm-hmm. Mary asks if he can survive what they'll do to you because she doesn't think Rose could. And Jack says that it may be a relief to hear that he will not be marrying Rose. Uh, he's enjoyed her dreams, and she he thinks that she's more than Mary will allow, but he doesn't want to spoil her life and watch people jeer at her. He wants her to be happy. Uh, no mention of what he wants, but... Right. Uh, for himself. Right. Uh, but, you know, the white lady's going to be fine, so that's great. Right. Uh, so he agrees that he'll end it and probably should have stopped it sooner. So Mary asks if he'll tell Rose himself, and he says that he will. She'll get the letter the following day. So Mary gets up to leave, and Jack says that if they lived in a, even a slightly better world, he wouldn't he wouldn't break up with Rose. And Mary says that if they lived in a better world, she wouldn't want him to, which is an interesting and not completely horrible way to leave it. Right, and it's... Because I, I feel like this is so close, and it's like, and and, and again, it's because we haven't seen mm-hmm. anything in their relationship to really justify, like him. He just rolls over so quickly. Well, but, and I just don't think if you really were engaged to someone, you wouldn't roll over that quickly, right? I and mean, I mean, and, I think, and, and, and I think he took it seriously enough to bring it up to his mother, right? You know, right? So. Yeah, it just it felt just a little odd. I mean, you know, I like what he said about. You know, saying that he thinks that Rose is more than Mary will allow. And Mary yeah, and like, I, I agree. And, but know. I also would have liked to have seen him account for the fact that, yeah, she's got some shortcomings. Right. And she's using him as this, you know, prop, essentially. Yeah, I mean, I think the issue is that in this episode, we really see Rose just treating Jack Ross as an object for her to work out her own thing, uh-huh. which we didn't really see that that way before. They seem yeah. to just have a nice spark, 
But in this episode, it didn't feel that way at all. And, and that just sort of threw off the, the balance of it to me. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's uh, it's all over now. Goodbye, Jack Ross. We'll probably never see you again. Yeah. Uh, you were perfectly acceptable. Yes. Well done, <laughs> sir. <laughs> uh, Mary is reading by the fire at Rosamond's place. Anna comes in and says that she's been downstairs and they're making dinner. Uh, Mary asks how Anna is, and Anna says, much as I was yesterday, much as I will be tomorrow. So the serenity prayer. Right. <laughs> but mainly she's saying stop being yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, You know. Mary says that she has decided to see Gilly. Uh, she's going to have lunch with him, and she's going to tell him to dismiss Green, but she won't say why. Anna says that that makes her very nervous. Mary says that no one needs to know the reason. She says, is Bates going to challenge Lord Gillingham as to why he has a different valet? No, but he's going to say something to Anna. Yeah. Well, anyway. But Mary says that that's it. Green will never be there again. So if Gilly comes by, Anna won't have anything to fear. Anna asks if Gilly is going to be visiting. Uh, and then some footman comes in and says, dinner's on the table, milady. And Mary says, well, I'm not sure Mead would have put it like that. <laughs> it's pretty fabulous. It is pretty fabulous. Uh, and she heads out. Now we get a shot of Bates strolling along the path away from Downton, jauntily swinging his murder cane. Yeah. Get out the blue filters, boy. <laughs> it's murder prison time. That it is. What a fucking idiot. Yep. Anyway, down in the servants' hall. Carson announces that they will be decorating the stalls that day. Also, how did he let Bates go to uh, York when it's Bazaar Day? He said that Bates doesn't have any duties around Whatever. there. Whatever. Missing I mean, out on with, sandwiches and beer. With Lord Grantham gone, like, I don't know what Bates is doing all yeah, day. Yeah, that's true. But Boots. More <laughs> boots. <laughs> uh, nothing but boots. That's right. The Bates story. <laughs> So anyway, Carson's telling them that they're decorating the stalls and anything shabby shows Downton in a bad light. And Mrs. Hughes says, whoa, we can't have that because she don't give a fuck about the bazaar. (laughs) Mosley tells Baxter that she'll meet some of the villagers and Baxter thought it was just the estate workers. But Mosley says, oh, no, the whole town gets behind the church bazaar with a very weird, (laughs) like, did did the bazaar touch you once? (laughs) Like, he has has crazy eyes on that line just for no reason. Uh, Baxter says that he's lucky. Mosley is understandably skeptical (laughs) and does, in fact, laugh in her face. Yes. Baxter says that he's lucky that he's grown up in a village where he's known and respected, and there's plenty who'd give an eye for that. Yeah. I would think that giving an eye would mean that you uh, would not necessarily be uh, known and respected. <laughs> yeah. And also, I actually transcribed that wrong. She said where he's known and his family is respected. Ah, uh, okay. That's fair. After all, <laughs> mostly he's not yeah. respected. No, he's not. Even Baxter knows that. Uh, anyway, uh, where did Baxter grow up, though? Yeah. Like, what, what's... What's her story, damn it? You know, honestly, when she says that about your family being respected, I'm thinking, like, you know, maybe her mom was a hooker or her dad was mm. a con man, you know, like the riches, Downton style. Yeah, or, or like Miss Towler and Reg Towler. Yeah, 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 and having, like, an alcoholic, abusive yeah. family. Yeah. So, I, you know... But actually, I mean, and that kind of, like, you know, like, it fits with her character reasonably well. Yeah. And yeah. That, no, I mean, yeah. So we'll see. I mean, maybe it'll finally come to light in the uh, the Christmas special. One can only hope. Yeah, anyway, Mosley says he's not used to feeling lucky. Baxter says that he should be. Uh, and then the Benny Hill music starts playing. <laughs> like, I, you know, I just, is this just, uh, like, are we just building up Mosley in order to, you know, put another pie in his face? Is that what's going on here? <laughs> I would love to see that. 
Well, that's always hilarious. Yeah. Good point. Mosley plus pie equals <laughs> hilarious. Uh, so there's a bunch of tables full of crap in the front hall. Rose is trying on like a Britannia helmet uh, and asks if there's a color scheme. Uh, Rosamond arrives saying she thought she'd be first, but McGee says, no, the task demands an early start. Yeah, like Rosamond didn't know that. What yeah. an idiot. She's just being a bitch. Um, Branson comes in to announce that various things are being done and McGee worries about the grass and Rose plays playfully stabs at Branson with like some pike or something. She's not really pulling her weight at all. <laughs> she She's in is, fact incurring more weight. <laughs> she is. She is dragging her weight. Uh, Branson then takes a heavy basket from Edith. And it's McGee. not even heavy. I can see that it is not a heavy basket. There's, there was actually a bunch of gold bars under those towels. All right, fine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Rosamond asks Edith if she should be doing this, and Edith says, "Why? What are you afraid of? That I'll lose the baby." Yeah, like Edith. It's pretty sweet. Edith really needs to channel her inner bitch more. Mm-hmm. Like, cause when she does, it's always great. It's true. But she, and she used to do it all the time. And yeah, yeah. I mean, we like her better now, but you know, we miss the old Edith sometimes. It's true. Branson carries some chairs past the homely liberal who sneers that he's a beast of burden. Yeah. And then McGee comes up carrying a tray of flowers. So I guess that puts the homely liberal in her place. Uh, yeah. Uh, how dare she think that the rich exploit the lower classes? Like, I used to think that, but then McGee carried a tray of flowers. So I yeah. was like, ah, we've been equal all along. Anyway, Great. Branson introduces the homely liberal and says she teaches at the school. And McGee says, I'm very interested in the school. <laughs> Yeah, I don't buy it. I don't think she's ever heard of the school. <laughs> she's like, a what? <laughs> don't you all have governesses? Uh, Branson pointedly calls her Lady Grantham. McGee then says, I must get on. <laughs> the, the crank is wearing off. Uh, and the homely liberal agrees that we should all agree to reduce the estate tax, more or less. Uh, she just basically is like, oh, maybe they're not so bad, except she doesn't actually think that. So Yeah, yeah. <sighs> at a fancy restaurant in London, which I would definitely eat at, it's like, you know, streams of sunlight coming through the high vaulted roof. I also have to say, though, so this is luncheon, and the subtitles on our DVD said that relaxing dinner music was being played. <laughs> Mistake! That's That's right. That was relaxing luncheon music. Yeah, clearly. Or maybe the musicians just had the wrong music in front of them. <laughs> oh, sorry, boys. This is a dinner tune. <laughs> Jazz. All of a sudden, all the wrong dishes are getting served. <laughs> Someone's carrying a large platter going, whoa, <laughs> It's mostly. <laughs> He's everywhere. Uh, anyway, Gilly tells Mary that she really ought to tell him why he must sack Green, and she says that she can't, just that he has done something Gilly would find abhorrent. Gilly says, <laughs> Gilly's like, did he rape a servant? Because I rape servants all the time. I took a class in it at Cambridge. Um, <laughs> it's 400 level. It's pretty, pretty impressive, really. Uh, anyway, he just says that he thinks it's very mean, but he believes Mary, and so yes, he will fire Green based on nothing. Uh, Mary asks if he's spoken to Mabel. Uh, he says that he has, although he didn't want to bring it up so as not to seem like he was twisting Mary's arm. Why did you even agree to meet her for lunch if you weren't going to twist her arm, you jackknife? 
Mary asks how Mabel took it, and Gilly says that he's pleased that she asked, and he thinks she took it with real style. So she killed herself? Which, yeah, that's going to be a great comfort to Mabel Lane Fox <laughs> in her old spinsterhood. Oh, she'll probably be fine. She's, she's rich. probably engaged already. Yeah, that's Like, true. by this luncheon. She's like, oh, dear. Well, I suppose I'll just have to accept one of my other dozens of speeches. <laughs> Pity. I had hopes for that one. <laughs> So Mary's glad, but she has to go catch the last train so as not to miss the bazaar. And Gilly says... God forbid she missed the goddamn bazaar. (laughs) Indeed. Gilly says he won't give up, not until she walks down the aisle with another man, and possibly not even then. Which, whoa. Maybe he did take a rape class. Maybe he did. Like, that's, that's a bit harsh. Although, of course... Mary is both irritated and beguiled in equal measure. Uh, yeah, she clearly has an orgasm when he says that. <laughs> she it's like, I only get off when I'm putting men off. <laughs> and look, it's kind of- also, we need to talk about what she's wearing in this scene. Yeah. She's not wearing purple. Which is great. Uh, and it's just this gorgeous, you know, sort of grayscale outfit mm-hmm. that manages to be very uh, poppy. Like yeah. Just the, the hat matches perfectly. Yeah. And well, and she just, she looks extremely put together. Yeah. Well, and just, I mean, and it's, li- it's a new outfit. We've never seen it before. And all the lines are very clean in it, mm-hmm. which is not, you know, cause there's a lot of people wearing like flower patterns yeah, and things like yeah. that that can look a little dumpy, but this one was very yeah, sharp. Yeah. Very sharp. Yeah. Well played Mary. Indeed. <laughs> so yeah, Gilly asks if she, he should take comfort in that. And Mary says in these exact words, Take what you like. So, so yeah. Mary, you can't be mad at this dude. <laughs> yeah. You are egging him on in the worst possible way. Yeah. But uh, she knows. Uh, she leaves, although only after Gilly gets up to pull out her chair. So great moments in feminism it isn't, this conversation. <laughs> That's what I'm getting at. Uh, this is Downton Abbey, right? <laughs> right. Uh, so Mary asks Gilly to let her know once he's fired green. In- I just wanted to say, too, that this is... I, I'm really frustrated by how the the thing that frustrates me about the rape plotline, at least, you know, while we know that Green is dead by the end of this episode, uh-huh. so it's, it's to some extent an end to it, um, is that nobody took Green's side, which I think, you know, I don't take Green's side, obviously, but I feel like that's the thing about these situations that's one of the big problems with rape at this time in particular uh-huh. is that... The real reason that, you know, Anna couldn't tell people wasn't, I mean, it was that Bates was going to kill this guy, but the right. real reason would be that so many people would say, oh, she, you know. It she, must have been her fault. That she was down there and she must have been encouraging him. Yeah. And, you know, people saw them being kind of flirty together and all this sort of yeah. thing. And Gilly himself could have come back to Mary and been like, well, I talked to Green about it and he explained it. And I have to say that your maid seems to have played a part. You know, like there could have been that whole thing. That would have been on. a lot more interesting. That's- well, and just, we don't even really see Anna through it anymore. Like it's just, you know, Anna has been become an object right in her own rape plot line. right exactly and i mean she's playing the hell out of it yeah she's just not being given much to do yeah it's the same as last season when all she gets to do is sit around and fret while mm-hmm. other people try to solve her problems yeah anyway that's all i had to say in the Dowager Countess's sitting room, some non-Pratt person shows in <laughs> Isabel. So uh, I don't know where Pratt is. More Pratt. More Pratt. All the Pratt. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, so Isabel wonders why she's been summoned. <laughs> and apparently old Murdy sent Isabel some flowers. He sent the Dowager Countess too, which are off sitting in the shadows. Isabel picks up the card and then Dowager <laughs> says she's already read the card. <laughs> right. And Murdy asks forgiveness for his tactlessness. And they say tactless so many times <laughs> that it loses all meaning. All right. But the Dowager Countess asks if he was tactless. Isabel says that he didn't mean to be. And uh, the Dowager Countess says it's very nice and quite surprising, but she can't quite keep herself from laughing. Like through the whole scene. She just, this she is, can't even believe what's going on. This is about her favorite development in her life. Yeah. <laughs> it's nighttime at Downton. Uh, Carson is in the boot room. Boot room! <laughs> uh, asks Bates to leave carson's shoes for one of the hall boys but Bates says he'll do them uh, he doesn't mind uh, after all if he ever leaves the boot room for more than eight hours at a time he'll turn back into a pumpkin oh that would be great it would be i mean he's got kind of a pumpkin look about him uh carson says that Bates took his time in york surprising anna who we just now realize is in the room Bates says that it was a long day anna asks Bates what he was up to Bates says this and that uh, note to anybody out there in a relationship, that is not an acceptable answer to how you spent the day. No. That like, is just either not... come up with a lie right. and lie your murdering face off. <laughs> right. Or tell the truth. Yeah. Like, it's just, it's ridiculous. Yeah. And, like, if I ever came home and asked you what you did all day, and you said, oh, this and that, I mean, I might correctly interpret that to mean just, like, your job. Right. Like, well, you know, because because... But if it was something where I'd been gone for a day and hadn't told you about it in advance. And then I found out about it from somebody else. Right. You'd have a more satisfactory explanation prepared at least. I, exactly. Yeah. Well, we've gotten a lot of telegrams from people that are like, oh God, I hope he just was like buying her a present or something. <laughs> Guess what guys? Probably not. I, I mean, I assume. This is Downton Abbey, the show that never met a stupid murder plot that it didn't pursue full bore. Yeah. Like it's been clear to me from, the end of the last episode, when Bates had clearly figured things out, I was yeah. like, great, he's going to kill him, and yep. that's going to be a whole thing again. Yeah. Fortunately, we're able to leave all this unpleasantness behind, because it's time for the bizarre! Bizarre! There are pennants! <gasps> sack races! Ooh. McCheek clapping for things! Children running around! People <laughs> exchanging money for various punches, pastries, and hams! <gasps> Mary's carrying George, and he's so cute <gasps> in a sailor so suit! Cute. Ah, sailor Little suit! Hat. Sailor suit! Sailor suit! <laughs> Bells are ringing, pastries are being presented, babies are left with nannies! <laughs> Mary sits with Rose, who says she's... Rose says that Mary is disappointing, uh, just and just like her mother, because she's gotten Jack Ross's uh, right. kiss off letter. Mary says that she is not just like Rose's mother. Yeah, but Rose is not going to listen yeah. to that nonsense. But uh, she says that if Rose is going to complicate her life, she should do it for the right reasons, such as a Turkish diplomat or uh, you know, <laughs> keeping her death vagina under wraps. <laughs> Carson tells Jimmy Kent that he's in charge of the tea tent. Tea Kent. <laughs> yeah, yes. Tea Kent. <laughs> Jimmy Kent says that McGee said that they should enjoy themselves. And Carson says, you know she didn't mean that. <laughs> right. Carson says that he can make Jimmy Kent's life much more uncomfortable than McGee can, so Jimmy Kent sulks off. Uh, in the meantime, Mosley has sat down behind Carson and apparently settled in for a nap. 
Um, so he also took McCheese seriously, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so Carson tells him to go tell some cars he sees pulling in where to park. Uh, we see them pulling in behind the boringest badminton game in Yorkshire. Mm-hmm. Uh, but wait a minute, says Carson. It's his lordship. How can you even tell? Uh, he could tell. All right. Well, it, you could see that it was two cars, one of which was filled with luggage. Oh, okay. So That's you could fair. see that much. How um, long was he gone? I don't know. Somewhere, what month is this? Somewhere between one day and ten years. <laughs> <laughs> the Downton Abbey promise. <laughs> um, so yeah, word spreads around the bazaar. Various people have reaction shots. Uh, Lord Grantham stands up in the car and waves his hat. Uh, Edith asks how we can be there, says they would have made such a fuss, and that Lord Grantham is a beast. He hopes that he isn't. This scene is so weird because you guys don't like each other, guys. <laughs> right. Why are you acting? Uh, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but he says he just wanted to surprise them, which I don't approve of people surprising other people, but that's that's my personal thing. Yeah. Uh, Mary asks when he got in, he says that morning, and that he had forgotten about the bazaar, so he's glad that he didn't uh, distract Whatever. them. Whatever. He totally knew about the bazaar, and he got in two days earlier and was like, ugh, I'm going <laughs> to wait till all that work's done, and then I'll go back. Yeah. I can't I can't deal with McGee when it's bazaar season. Not during bazaar season. <laughs> he called all the people at the village who were mad at each other. He's like, listen, guys, I'm going to be there. Just fucking hold it together until I get there. But don't tell her. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Mary asks what happened with uh, McH, and he says that it was just a reprimand. Mary's like, oh, so then you did help. And he's like, I don't think I made a blind bit of difference. Well, then I'm so glad we've had this plot, Julian Fellows, where nothing happens to no one. True. Although I have to say, I think we are kind of glad, because I think uh, it was nice not having Lord Grantham It really around. was. Like, it was it like an changed... un- unscheduled character ceasefire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And that brings us to the second of our recurring segments in which our resident scandal monger, Tom, will tell us all about history. (laughs) Hey, it's Tom Repeats History. It sure is. Uh, Okay, so now is the time when I will actually get into the Teapot Dome scandal, which I started to look at earlier, but wound up just talking about Warren Harding, as you may recall. Oh, I do. (laughs) I am now the president of the Warren G. Harding (laughs) Memorial Fan Club. (laughs) Yes. Uh, but the, the key figure in the Teapot Dome scandal was actually Albert B. Fall. Uh, the B stands for bacon. And that's literally true. Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. Albert Bacon Fall. Um, he was the secretary of the- Wait, was he the Fall guy? Uh, Did we already have this conversation on uh, this podcast? Possibly. And he wasn't, I mean- Sorry for repeating the jokes. He took the fall, but he actually did do the yeah. deed, so. Um, but he was, he was the secretary of the interior. Uh, he was born poor in Kentucky, uh, self-educated. He worked in a cotton factory in Tennessee, uh, kicked around the Southwest, and he, he finally wound up in the New Mexico Territory uh, with a law degree. There, he got into some no-kidding Deadwood-style like shenanigans. Uh-huh. He kind of hooked up with his neighbor, a guy named Oliver Lee, and various gunmen that Oliver Lee hired to intimidate various enemies and also to do a bit of cattle rustling. They would steal cattle and like change the brands to make it look like they were owned by Lee or <laughs> Fall or whatnot. Uh, there was another local lawyer around, Albert Jennings Fountain, who did not approve of all these shenanigans. People really had horrible names in the past. They did, yes. Uh, and he was not afraid to stand up to Albert B. Fall and his gang. However, he should have been, as he and his eight-year-old son disappeared. <gasps> Oliver Lee and his associates were accused of the murder, but they were successfully defended in court by Albert Fall. Where was Mr. Bates when all this was happening? <laughs> Good question. Uh, actually, I think he would have been in the Boer Ward pretty much exactly this time. Okay. Um, well, 
there's one murder we can't pin on him. <laughs> yes. Uh, then Sheriff Pat Garrett, who's a uh, minor Western celebrity, he is the one that uh, killed Billy the Kid, mm-hmm. but he was a, a upstanding roaming sheriff. He uh, investigated the murder of Albert Jennings Fountain, but was himself murdered. <gasps> and the murderer was again defended successfully by <laughs> Albert Fall. <laughs> this isn't actually funny. But- no, I know. But this is all like, this is all really happened. Uh-huh. Like, I'm beginning to think that Branson's background may not be as much of a political liability <laughs> as we had thought. Yeah, he didn't personally murder anyone. <laughs> right. So naturally, in 1912, when New Mexico became a state, Fall became a senator. Uh, yeah, that's how, that's the path, right? You know, murder, murder, Senate term. Yeah, apparently. Uh, he was a Republican senator, despite the fact that neither party really liked him this, that much, but he had like one guy that was the other Republican senator that was sort of his like patron and, uh-huh. they, you know, scratched various backs and bribed various people and got him into the Senate. Uh, the governor tried everything that he could to get Fall out of the Senate, but he just couldn't find a way to, to get him out of there. Uh, he did support suffrage, and he did oppose World War One. so those are two good things about him. Um, yeah, murderers can have okay politics. Yeah, indeed. And then the, the other senator, his only ally in New Mexico, retired, uh, but fortunately by this point, he had become part of the Ohio gang. <gasps> That's right. Uh, senator Round Harding and just made a bunch of friends in D.C., so... Well, he was from Kentucky. Right. So they probably made fun of him a lot, but he was like, I'm going <laughs> to use this to my advantage, like all Kentuckians do. They're they're a canny bunch. They really are. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So when Harding was elected in 1920, he was appointed to Secretary of the Interior. So the background to the scandal is that the Navy had been switching over from coal to oil, and they realized that all the oil in America was getting snapped up by various private prospectors. So they had set aside three big areas, two in California and one in Wyoming, in Wyoming and reserved all the oil deposits in those areas for the use of the Navy. Now, when Fall took office, he talked the Secretary of the Navy into transferring the authority from the Department of the Navy to the Department of the Interior, arguing that he was more accustomed to these sorts of transactions. Harding agreed to the plan, as did the Secretary of the Navy, who seems to have just been kind of a weak dude. Mm-hmm. And so the authority was transferred to Fall. Now, Fall had an old prospecting pal. Uh, this is a guy named Edward Dehaney. He had gotten his start drilling actually in Los Angeles near the La Brea Tar Pits. And is uh, indirectly, he's the inspiration for Daniel Day-Lewis's character in There Will Be Blood. Ah. Because he inspired a character in the Upton Sinclair... Oil. Or wait, Upton Sinclair? Sinclair, Sinclair Lewis? Lewis. Sinclair Lewis. I always do that. They, well, you know. Yeah. In Sinclair Lewis's novel that that was based on. So yeah, Edward Doheny is the guy. I'm an oil man. <laughs> he was. He was very much an oil man. And he was. his company was one of several that were interested in developing the California reserves. However, he had the advantage because all the other companies wanted to get their leases actually approved by Congress. And Doheny didn't feel the need for that formality. <laughs> Well, they'd heard what happened with those sewing machine patents, and they were very, very concerned. <laughs> right. So Doheny had his son withdraw $100,000 in cash from his bank account, wrap it up in paper and put it in a bag and bring it to Fall's apartment, after which, coincidentally, they signed a lease uh, turning those reserves over to Doheny's company. Now, when the scandal was uncovered, they claimed that the $100,000 had actually been a loan 
and that Fall had signed an IOU for it. When pressed on this ridiculous story, <laughs> they eventually brought forward what they claimed was the IOU, only the part where Fall had signed it had accidentally been torn off. <laughs> so... In the meanwhile, Fall was negotiating with Harry Sinclair of the Mammoth Oil Company over the Wyoming Reserve, which was actually considered to be like the the richest of the three reserves. So they hung out at Fall's ranch in New Mexico to discuss it, after which Harry Sinclair sent Fall six heifers, a yearling bull, two six-month-old boars... And a partridge in a pear tree? (laughs) Four sows, and for his foreman, an English thoroughbred horse. Oh, my. Yes. So they then set up an agreement for the lease. And at one point, somebody asked if they should get the attorney general's opinion as to whether it was legal. Fall did not want that. And not really because the attorney general would have said it was illegal, but because the attorney general would have asked for a cut of the bribe. (laughs) (laughs) I love politics. Yes. And yet I don't want to watch House of Cards. (laughs) Right. I guess I don't see the point when actual history is so much more interesting. Indeed. No, the Attorney General was very glad when he was getting invested for his own entirely unrelated scandals to be able to complain, claim innocence on this one. (laughs) So they secretly signed the lease and locked it in Fall's desk. But it was still valid, apparently. (laughs) Um... And Sinclair then gave Fall's son-in-law about $200,000 worth of bonds. And then Fall's son-in-law gave Sinclair $1,100 for the livestock because Congress was already investigating at this point, And so they belatedly tried to make it look like he had purchased that livestock. I guess, again, here, the thing that I'm curious, much like with Edith's pregnancy, why did they not try to cover their tracks as they went? I think... You know, I think it's a few things, part of which I think is the background they came from, which is, I mean, A, I mean, look at Fall's history, where yes. he could just cover up, like, murder <laughs> after the fact and get away with it. And also that I feel like all these things they were doing had been normal in politics, like, through the second half of the 1800s. Okay. And it things was- really did start to solidify, like, post the Civil War America did become a lot less lawless. Right. Well, and in particular, the corruption had, in the last couple administrations with, like, Taft and Teddy Roosevelt, Mm -hmm. like, they'd really started to rein in corruption. Mm -hmm. But then these guys came along, and they hadn't really gotten the memo that they weren't supposed to be so corrupt anymore. Mm -hmm. That's basically, I think, what it was. Was was the part of the memo that said to do that torn off? (laughs) Quite possibly. Uh, then, uh, Fall's son-in-law, after accepting the $200,000 in bonds, uh, said that Fall would like a loan, and so Sinclair handed over another $36,000 in straight cash. I don't really know what that was about. Okay. Um, Just for fun. They were like, you know what, guys? If we're gonna go big, let's, let's go big. Yeah. But anyway, to sum it all up, the Fall had given these two men oil reserves that were estimated to be worth roughly $100 million. In, and- in that, in uh, that time period. In that time money. period. Okay. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. And had gotten about $409,000 in bribes in return. That seems stupid. Well, I mean, you know. Well, I guess he wouldn't get anything if somebody else was... Right. Doing, like, okay. yeah, yeah. Um, 
you know, and I mean, those reserves were going to go to somebody. The government wasn't going to develop them themselves. Right, that's it true. It was just that he gave it to them on favorable terms. Okay. You know, like, because they, they paid for the leases. Like, it wasn't like he just gave it to them. But they didn't go through the proper channels. There was no bidding process. Okay. Right, yeah. And it's interesting that giving them the lease without negotiating terms or having them bid on it, that was perfectly legal. Mm-hmm. It's just the fact that he took bribes to do it that was against the law. <laughs> what a time. <laughs> right. So at this point, other oil executives started complaining to their own senators that they hadn't gotten a chance at this. Mm-hmm. And an investigation started, which which kind of went slow at first. But then people started noticing that Fall had suddenly gotten really rich. <laughs> <laughs> um, and another- oh, God, how could he be so bad at this? Like, I, I know. You can't go flashing cash around when you're obtaining it through illegal means. Right. And then Robert La Follette, who is uh, actually really a great senator in history, is a real progressive guy, but uh, he was involved in the scandal but really wasn't taking mm-hmm. it seriously himself either until somebody raided his office. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. And then he took it seriously. Uh, another fun fact, during the hearings, Fall said, quote, Sir, if you have a milkshake and I have a milkshake and my straw reaches across the room, I'll end up drinking your milkshake. Oh! Yeah. Well, hey! Yeah. Wow! <laughs> All right. Wow! Way <laughs> yeah. to go, P.T. Anderson. You are a smart man who reads Wikipedia. <laughs> that is right. At the very least. Although I will add, actually, Wikipedia, not that helpful in this one. It has really? a very surprisingly bare-bones account of huh. all of this. Where did you find all your information? Then? Uh, I mean, I did... Hunting through various Wikipedia articles, I did piece a lot of this together, but it was actually a, a article on the City University of New York's website huh. that had a very detailed summation that was more focused on the special counsel that they used to investigate mm-hmm. it and is that a model for future corruption investigations and so on. But a lot of the detail came from there and not from, from, from Wikipedia. So then it came time to try to put people in jail. Uh, the first time they convicted, uh, they, they accused Dohaney and Fall of conspiracy to defraud, but the jury found them not guilty. They then tried Fall and Sinclair together for conspiracy, but that case went awry when it was discovered that Sinclair had had a private detective tailing jury members. So uh, he was put in six months of jail for contempt of court or whatever, but that was a mistrial. Mm -hmm. So they tried him again. This time they managed to get Fall's son-in-law to testify about what he'd been involved with. Sinclair was acquitted anyway. (laughs) <laughs> but they then tried Fall on his own for bribing Doheny using his son-in-law's testimony, which was only about the bribing from Sinclair. But anyway, that was evidence enough that they finally managed to get a conviction out of it. So Fall was convicted for bribing for being bribed by Doheny. Mm-hmm. They then tried Doheny for bribing Fall. Not only was Doheny acquitted of bribing him, but his company then foreclosed on Fall's ranch for failing to repay the loan. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. So I wonder how Mac H is purportedly hooked into all this. Right. That's a bit really sketchy mm-hmm. um, because it really was like just these two guys very like yeah. explicitly. Like there wasn't I like a massive... I guess Julian Fellows similarly stymied by the Teapot <laughs> Dome scandal Wikipedia page was like, ah, I'm sure he was in there somewhere. <laughs> right. Well, because it sounds more likely that Mac H would have been one of the guys who missed his chance at bidding. Right. And therefore had not done anything wrong. Yeah. 
I mean, I'll say too, like, you know, God knows it took him a while to figure everything out and there's a congressional investigation going on, you know. Yeah. They may have, he may have just been randomly. Like a person of interest. Yeah. And just randomly corrupt and they found something out or, you yeah. know, something like that. Well. Yeah. We'll see. Anyway, that, that was a fun scandal. Yeah. That is a really <laughs> fun scandal. Yeah. Thanks, Tom. You're welcome. Way to repeat that history. <laughs> Now, back at the bazaar. Yes. Uh, Mosley and Jimmy Kent come up to Thomas, who is unloading the car, and asks, and they ask how America was. He says it was very modern and very interesting. So clearly he got some, some, some business. Yeah. He, he got a little strange. Yeah, a little, a little modern. Yeah. Dick wedding. <laughs> right. Uh, he asks how it's been at Downton, and Jimmy Kent says, not very interesting and not very modern. And I'm like, why don't you just go be a gigolo if you hate it here so much? Yeah, agreed. Idiot. <laughs> Uh, so Bates is apparated by Lord Grantham in order to take his coat. Like I don't know where he was, but anyway. The boot room! <laughs> right. Uh, somebody sent a message, I guess. Anyway, Lord Grantham asked Bates if he has missed him because, significant glance at Thomas, I've certainly missed you. Like, what happened? Right? How <laughs> interesting did it get? <laughs> right. Did you revert to your... Uh your college days of yep. <laughs> getting passes made at you by attractive men. <laughs> um, anyway, Bates says that it's good to see Lord Grantham, but then he pauses as it is time for Lord Grantham to have his dramatic reunion with McGee. Uh, they greet each other. He says, I can't tell you how many times I've imagined this scene and they kiss and it's very, cute. it's so cute that we're going to ignore how ugly her hat is in this scene. <laughs> um, no, but it is, you know, yeah. if you've been married or like with somebody a long time, you haven't seen each other in a while. It's pretty much like that. Smooch each yeah, other. Smooching and yeah. stuff's fun. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even like you that much. I know. Good. Uh, yeah, but it's not as cute, actually, as Daisy and Mr. Mason! Hooray! They, uh, hop down from Mr. Mason's tractor carrying picnic baskets, and he, Mr. Mason says that it's been a while, uh, since she's been there. Daisy apologizes, and he says, no apologies, not from Daisy. After all, he exposits, she's his <laughs> daughter-in-law, all he has left of his son, and this is her home whenever she comes. Daisy says she does love it when she comes, Mr. Mason is glad, and we say, Daisy, stay forever, you own that farm! That's right. Uh, in a tent at the bazaar, Alfred kind of slouches in. Uh, Patmore and Hughes are glad to see him. They give him some punch. He asks if Ivy's about, and she pops in. They step aside and British about his father's funeral a little bit, then British about the letter a little bit, and eventually they agree that they'll part friends. Alfred then asks if Daisy is there. He says he wanted to see if they could be friends and all before he goes, and Ivy explains she is at the farm that she owns and may never return. <laughs> At said farm, Mr. Mason asks Daisy if she's there to avoid Alfred. Uh, she says that since Alfred won't be coming back, uh, this is weird. No, because she doesn't really answer the question. She just says, oh, well, he's never coming back, so right. I'll never have to come to this farm that I love so much again. <laughs> right. But he asks what Mrs. Patmore says. Daisy says, <laughs> Daisy says Mrs. Patmore advised her to stay away, but Mr. Mason, in his infinite wisdom, disagrees. Mm -hmm. He wishes that Daisy would stay there and never leave, which we also feel, mm -hmm. uh, and he hopes that one day she will. But he says Mrs. Patmore is wrong to keep her away from Alfred because there won't be too many people in her life that she loves, and Alfred is one. Daisy says that she doesn't know what she feels about him. Mr. Mason says that even so, she needs to say goodbye to him. Daisy says that she couldn't think of the words, but Mr. Mason says that they'll find them together. I fucking love Daisy and Mr. Why Mason. Why isn't this a whole show? Yeah. Like, uh, like I just I like them together so much. Like his advice to her, like 
half like partially redeemed some of the storyline and everything. I and know. Just like it was, it's just nice. It. I wish I had a Mr. Mason in my life. Mm-hmm. Cousins, are you Mr. Mason? <laughs> Do you have a farm? If so, we want to squat on your land. <laughs> Uh, at the bazaar, the Dowager Countess asks Edith if she's bearing up, and Edith says that she's never going to see Michael again, which, again, that by itself, with no pregnancy involved, mm-hmm. very interesting, very compelling. Yeah. Or, you know, what if she wasn't pregnant, and she had kind of hoped that she would be, because she doesn't know if she's ever going to... Uh, there are, like, 47 different <laughs> ways this could have been so fucking amazing, and Julian Fellows has managed to not choose one of them. Yeah, it's masterful. Uh, The Dowager says that she would support Edith if Edith wanted to go look for him, but Edith says they've already done all that with the detectives and police and whatnot. So the Dowager says that she must be patient. Uh, Edith says she thinks God doesn't want her to be happy, which is demonstrably true. Uh, If by God she means Baron Julian Fellows. Which is her God. Yes. Um, Yeah. And it's just another, you know... It's not. She doesn't even get pies in the face. No, just, it's just yeah, yeah. It's just sad trombone forever. <laughs> yeah. The Dowager Countess says that all life is a series of problems that we must try to solve until at last we die. Like she's been reading some Nietzsche this episode. Like I like it. <laughs> I do too. I I enjoy when the Dowager philosophizes. Yeah. Uh, the Dowager tells Edith to go get them some ice cream, and Edith laughs and says, yes, that should sort it out. Uh, shouldn't you be having cravings? She's having a really easy first trimester. She BT dubs. Yeah, like it's, yeah. <laughs> Barely gaining any weight, not really vomiting very much, we, it yeah. seems. Yeah. I'm very envious of yeah. this person. Yeah, so Edith heads off, although there's a whole bunch of bratty village kids fighting around the ice cream vendors, so that's going to be annoying. Uh, now there's a sack race. People are trying to bite apples on strings for a reason. <laughs> Gilly is that? Wait, Gilly? Gilly? At the bazaar? Again? What? Edith, uh, the Dowager Countess, Mary and Rosamond all stare at the aristocratic pirate <laughs> in their midst and Mary goes up to him and then the women hang back and gossip. And the Dowager Countess says he's the most unconvincing fiancé I've ever come across. <laughs> Boom! Yes. Rosamond says perhaps the fiancé doesn't know that, uh... Is that what she meant? I think she means that the yeah. doesn't know. And the Dowager Countess says that if we know, she knows. You can count on that. Yeah. Which makes sense. Mabel Lane Fox has to be pretty savvy. Yeah. And she can't have been that shocked when Gilly broke it off. Oh, yeah, because, like, he continued not being in London all the time. (laughs) Right. Like, that's not the behavior of a fiancé. Yeah. Gilly has just told Mary that Green is dead. Yeah, and she's like, how can that be? And he says, narrative economy. It's all the rage. (laughs) Right. Baron Fellows was really sick of this (laughs) storyline. As were we all. (laughs) Uh, But, yes, he was in Piccadilly, and he slipped or stumbled and fell into the road. Yeah, that's completely unsuspicious. Right. And presumably was then run over. Like, yeah. it just implies that he just fell into the road and was like, oh, that'll do it for me. <laughs> ah, I've never been in the road. <laughs> the shock. The it's humiliation t- was too much. <laughs> Tell Savoy. <laughs> I say farewell. <laughs> Gilly says that it just seemed odd after their conversation, which is true, uh, and asks if Mary can now explain why he had to sack him. Uh, but then Lord Grantham dawdles on in and says, What a gathering of the clans today's turning out to be, which annoyed me. Um, Mary excuses herself, and Lord Grantham asks Gilly if his presence there is a good sign. 
Uh, and Gilly says no. Meanwhile, Mary goes to Anna, who is playing some kind of fishing game next to Branson, who is holding Sibby, just for the record. Off to the side, Mary's just filled Anna in. Anna asks if anyone saw this happening, and Mary says that it was crowded and lots of people saw it. They glance over at Bates, who adopts his patented, yes, I definitely did just kill someone face. <laughs> Anna is glad everyone saw it, uh, but doesn't mean anything by that, uh, except that, you know, this is going to be a lot easier to get my husband off these murder charges, unlike that woman who died alone eating a pie. <laughs> she, she committed suicide by pie. Oh, my God. Uh, pie-aside? Sue-a-pie? <laughs> Blake then shows up, because of course, and asks Mary yeah. if McGee warned him of his coming. Uh, she says that she did, but she totally did not. Yeah. He says he'd no sooner got back, uh, to London than he was dispatched to a tenant farmer's convention in Whitby. Fucking Whitby. Huh? Whitby! Damn you. Mary asks him if he thought a man was involved. Like, again, apropos of nothing, like, this is now Mary's bazaar. <laughs> right. Green's death is Mary's bazaar. She wants to know from Blake if he thought a man was involved in a crime or an incident, but thought that the outcome of the crime was right, what would he do? Blake says that it's theoretical, but he suspects that he would say nothing. And I think he also should have said, did I serve with this person in a war <laughs> or go to school with him? Because it's really going to have a lot more bearing on what I decide. <laughs> right. Was, it, was this person rich? Yeah. Good point. Jimmy Kent fails to ring the bell. Hey! So, obviously, if Jimmy Kent can't, we know mostly can't, because he's very weak, you see. Uh, it would be ridiculous. Oh, well, he, yeah, he just did. So, hilarious. I hate everything about this. And Baxter now loves Molesley. Which I kind of am not opposed to this, but again, no, no, I'd no. really like to know what her jam is. I'd like to know what her jam is, but I'm also agree that I'm not opposed to the Baxter Molesley relationship. It's the best thing they've had for Molesley the entire time. Yeah, so. absolutely, absolutely agreed. Thomas chooses this moment to hover menacingly over Baxter. Uh, she says that uh, nothing has happened while he was gone. And nothing has, man. It's really? been real boring. All bizarre all the time. Yeah. Uh, but Mosley sees this and intervenes, tells Mr. Barrow to leave her alone. We don't want any bullying brought back from overseas, do we, Miss Baxter? Uh, and he offers her his arm. She accepts, and they head off. Thomas watches them go, puffing his cigarette with his elbow at its evilest angle. Again, what are you getting out of this? Uh, it's not at all clear. Lord Grantham walks uh, through the bazaar, reunited with his real love, Isis. Hooray! We did not get to see their reuniting uh, because Baron Julian never shows us anything that matters. <laughs> right. uh, so he sits down uh, by, the by the dowager and he says it's a relief to drink in public without a policeman pouncing <laughs> down with prohibition. Here, here. The dowager countess can't believe he didn't have a drink at all, which is not what he said. Right. But uh, Lord Grantham says that Harold does have his uses. And then the dowager hopes that uh, they all leave them in peace. Lord Grantham uh, suggested that is not going to be the case because Mac L is bringing Mac H in the summer for Rosa's coming out. Mac L wants to see another London season before she dies because she's fucking awesome. <laughs> a Daisy walks into the downstairs at Downton carrying a basket. Uh, Patmore kind of chases after her and uh, Daisy finds Alfred sitting with Ivy Carson and Hughes in the servants hall and says that she's glad that he's still there. She says that her bus was delayed and she was worried that she'd missed him. Uh, he says he's off to the station and he's not going to come back. His mother is moving to Crewe to be near his sister and his father has just died, so he's not going to have any reason to come back to Yorkshire. Daisy's brought him a present. Mr. Mason made him a basket with food and drink for his journey. 
Carson says that was very kind and asks if she's sure it was asks if the basket wasn't meant for Daisy, mm-hmm. which is like, and Daisy says no. He, she says that she told Mr. Mason that they were old friends, so he made it for Alfred. Carson kind of tacitly gives them approval to step out into the hall and have a moment. And Alfred asks Daisy if she knows about Ivy, and she says she does. Alfred says that he's been blind about Ivy, and Daisy says that love is blind. And Alfred says that he's starting to wonder if he's been a fool. Daisy's been so good to him. I fucking hate Alfred, and I hope that he dies on the way back to crew. Right, but what... Or London. Right. But what I like is that Daisy totally handles this situation. She really does. She says, that's kind of you to say and good to hear. I loved you, Alfred. I'll not deny it. But that's done with now, and what I felt won't come back. That, um, And it's time for you to go your way and me to go mine. And Alfred says, asks if she wishes him well. She very much does, and they part as friends forever. Uh, so Hughes and Patmore come out, ask if Daisy's all right, and she says she's just going to step out, and she'll come back in for her apron. So she goes out the servant's entrance and then sits at a bench, and Mrs. Patmore follows her out. Daisy says, you know, that's that. It's done, and we all cheer. <laughs> yes. Mrs. Patmore tells Daisy that when she brought in that basket, I was so proud of you, I felt like crying out. If you were my own daughter, I couldn't be prouder than I am now. And it is just so fucking great, you guys. Yeah. We have hated this love quadrangle for so long. <laughs> I know. But Mrs. Patmore and Daisy have had this amazing relationship yeah. from the beginning. From the beginning, yeah. And it's just incredible. Yeah. So Mrs. Patmore, you know, very Britishly puts a hand on Daisy's shoulder, then rubs it on her apron, least uh, any emotion get on the food. <laughs> right, exactly. And she goes back into the house. Yeah, yeah. But, oh, I just, so nice to have that horrible storyline wrap up so nicely. Yeah, I mean, and, it's a very mature adult yeah, way to end it. Yeah, so yeah. good on that. Yeah. Now all that needs to happen is that Jimmy Kent needs to get struck by lightning <laughs> and we'll be fine. <laughs> we won't see it either we'll just i can't believe he was struck by lightning someone will suddenly say yeah back at the bazaar people are packing up blake asks mary if she knows why he came and she's like to see the bazaar it's funny because she knows that the bazaar sucks <laughs> right the color scheme they do have a <laughs> color scheme and it's terrible <laughs> why these british people insist on trying pastels and whites i do not understand i also they don't. are ill-suited for them yes uh, but Blake has apparently found himself unable to think about anything but Mary in the past 16 hours since he <laughs> left. Uh, and he says he's only asking for a chance. Mary asks if there was really a conference in Whitby. He says no. Mary says that she is flattered, even moved, but she doesn't want to add to the list of men she's disappointed. Note, she... She keeps a physical list. <laughs> yes. She's writing this down in her diary every day. Right. Believe me. <laughs> Um, yeah, so fortunately, Blake, classy gentleman that he is, refuses to take no for an answer. That's, again, a lot of taking no for an answer in this series featuring a rape plot. Right? Yeah. yeah. Not. Yeah, not, not cool, Baron Fellows. Here, here. Uh, yeah, speaking of being classy, uh, Bates <laughs> approaches Anna in a downstairs hallway in a shot that the cinematographers clearly, uh, frame ominously, very yeah. intentionally. Yeah. Uh, he asks why she's still there, and then she repeats that she wishes she knew where Bates went on the previous day. He says he wanted to get away using his I'm definitely lying face. <laughs> right. She asks if he'd do anything foolish and risk everything they've built. He says, certainly not. You know me. When I do a thing, I like to have a very good reason for doing it, which basically is just a way of saying, yes, I killed that guy. <laughs> right. 
So he heads out. Anna is very troubled. And Bates, sadly, was not killed on the way back to his home planet. Yeah. I wish I thought that, you know, he was being set up as like a stealth villain. Right. But he's not. I mean, just Baron yeah. Fellows can't even see how there could be a difference of opinion about Bates. Yeah, like this, I feel like all the directors and everybody involved knows that Bates is a villain except for Lord Fellows. And they're like, like we can't tell him. His doctor <laughs> says his heart can't take it. <laughs> Next, you'll be telling him that servants were sometimes unhappy. <laughs> he really is the uh, David O. Selznick <laughs> of the Edwardian era. <gasps> uh, at the bazaar, Gilly asks Blake and Mary where they've been hiding. Blake says in plain view. Like all tricksters or jokers or whatever the fuck he says. Yeah, so I the, hate all of these people. So they've both got their hackles up a little bit. Uh, Lord Grantham has found some champagne and asks Branson to find some clean glasses. After all, you're not really an aristocrat, are you, Tom? <laughs> Lord Grantham compliments McGee on the triumphant bazaar, and everyone applauds. McGee says that she hopes it was a triumph, uh, and she's told him to come back and clear up the rest tomorrow. Yeah. Oh, my so, God. Yeah. You're great. <sighs> Isabel says it was the best bazaar she's known there, and the Dowager Countess agrees, at least since your father, Lord Grantham's father, and I were managing it. Uh, that would have been a fucking awesome bazaar. Agreed. Full of booms. Yeah. She would not have been flustered. Mm-mm. Or on crank. <laughs> That's right. She would have taken it all in stride. Mm-hmm. Lord Grantham, as the prodigal husband, announces a toast to his extraordinary wife. She's not that... It's, it's, a, it's a fair. Like, that's... Uh, anyway... Blake compliments her and takes his leave, and McGee says it was kind of him to come. Gilly asks Blake for a lift, and Blake can't find a way to refuse, so Mary says that she will see them off. Lord Grantham asks McGee, what sort of menage has that turned into while I've been away? And nobody answers. Because gross. Right. And so the last shot of this episode, and thus in a sense the last shot of the season, is just this bizarre shot of Rose, <laughs> Edith, and Isabel all simultaneously leaning forward. Well, you know, they were like, oh, we had that like Degrassi-style freeze frame <laughs> of Lord Grantham and Branson and Matthew all like laughing on the cricket field last year. <laughs> So this is their female answer to that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and wow. it's awful. It is. You know, both of the finales of this season and then the last one uh, all hinged on Alfred kind of being a jerk. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And now he's gone. I don't know what they'll do next season. Oh, God. I don't even want to think about it. <laughs> yeah, let's not. At any rate, so that's the end of the season proper. Right. All that we have left now is the Christmas special. Right. Uh, which is actually the London season. Yes. Which is nice because I'm, well, I guess the last one wasn't Christmas. It was just them going to Dunneagle. Right. But I'm glad we don't feel like, you know, they're not tied to Christmas as uh, yeah, the subject matter. And this is also an, an interesting thing to see, the yeah, London season. because they've talked about it so much, we've just never seen it. Right, so it's, right. you know, we're very excited. <laughs> we are. Much like Mac L. <laughs> but that brings us to the Abbey Awards, mm-hmm. uh, leading off with Best Evasion. And that goes to uh, Lord Grantham for evading helping with the bazaar. Yeah, he really uh, did a good job there. Yeah. Well done, sir. He may have been back for a week. <laughs> <laughs> He's just hanging out at his club. It's just like, I just want to make it there for the thing where you eat apples on strings. The rest <laughs> of it I don't care about. 
Uh, next we have Worst Overbite. Uh, in a weird reversal, the homely liberal. That's right. Uh, really a dick yeah. about everyone's social status. Yeah, really very From much so. From the top so. to the bottom. It was uh, unpleasant. Yeah, we hope she gets hit by a car. Right. Basically. Yeah, could happen. They never kill the people we want them to kill. <laughs> and that's really true. Uh, next up with Worst Decision. Uh, and that is Bates for introducing yet another Bates murder subplot. Yeah. What an idiot. Yeah. We're so angry. We're quite upset. And then we have the Gibson Girl Award for the best dressed in the episode. Uh, Edith. Yeah. I'm tr- Kicking the season off, wrapping it up, looking fine. Yeah. Fecund and fine. That's right. After looking so bad last week. Ah, oh, she looks so great. Yeah. Oh, looking really good. Just the hat she had on. I mean, there were wider brim and also just like more detail going yeah. on in them. Yeah. And just really nice uh, outfits. I mean, Mary almost pulled it out with one outfit, which right. is saying something. Edith had several very excellent color schemes. I loved her outfit in the very beginning when they were walking across the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, her and Mary and I guess it was Napier. Or no, Branson to go down and see right, the pigs. right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but she just she's she's looking great. Mm-hmm. Sorry about your pregnancy. <laughs> <laughs> and next up, we have the Fashion Backwards Award for Backward Fashion, aka the Backy, which goes to <laughs> Murphy. Yeah, for his stupid old fashioned hat. That's right. Come on, man. Yeah, the homely liberal also looked terrible, but we already gave her an award. Yeah. And I think she won the backy last week, so. Yeah, that's true. We don't like to double up on the back. We don't like to do back-to-back backies. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. That is ridiculous. <laughs> Next, we have the cutest baby award. Uh, George, sailor suit. Yeah. End of discussion. That's correct. I mean, and Sibby was a little out of sorts. She was. She was not at her best in that's, this episode. That is correct. And then finally, mm-hmm. we have the Maggie Smith scale of Maggie Smiths. That's right. And it's a full five. Oh man, she pulled it out in this episode. Yeah, was, she was she was wheeling, dealing, laying down wisdom. Yeah, her her delight at Merton and Isabel's you know interest, weird romance, <laughs> yeah, or whatever the hell's going on. Yeah, uh, yeah, but so she's she's going out on top here. We'll see how she does uh, in the next the next. Uh, round of things if she's right. going to be present for the London season. Yeah, I wonder. Does she go out? I don't remember. I think maybe sometimes. Well, if well, Rose is coming out. Right. But I don't think she generally does. Yeah, I'm tr- well, because the only one we've sort of seen part of is Sybil's, and I don't, I feel like s- that she wasn't on that I trip. I can't remember. Even, I mean, we only saw them leaving and coming back. Yeah. So. Well, you know. Anyway. All questions will be revealed. That's right. So just FYI, uh, I am traveling this next week so our our release schedule might be a bit behind just fyi please don't freak out right uh the podcast will come it just it may be a day or two late yes. we're not 100 percent sure how we're going to deal with my being gone over the weekend right um but uh there will definitely be some exciting things coming up after that as well absolutely yeah. because we will be covering mr selfridge and uh, we are actually going to cover it weekly that's right uh we decided that we like it enough and you all like it enough that it warrants doing you know an episode per week yeah so we'll and continue it's... putting the podcast out on a weekly basis at least for that Mm -hmm. i think we're going to take a break at some point i would have to think (laughs) we can't keep going on like this um anyway but uh you can look forward to that we're really really excited about mr selfridge oh yeah we've we've been watching actually we got uh i've been meaning to send a telegram but cousin donnell uh sent us mr selfridge on dvd which Mm -hmm. we just received so we've kind of been going back and watching it yeah and we're really excited Mm -hmm. it's so good yeah uh, so that's already airing on ITV if you are that kind of person. Right. Uh, we're not completely sure how we're gonna do it versus the PBS schedule since they, 
guard those details <laughs> right. with more, uh, <laughs> you know, vigor than the nuclear clothes themselves. Yeah, like, but... can we get Edward Snowden on this or something? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so uh, just be on the lookout for that. We'll probably figure out sort of the schedule a bit more so you can kind of plan your your life mm-hmm. that you're watching. Uh, and that's about it. So until next time, up, up yours, yours downstairs, downstairs luncheon out.